1: Hey, Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to grill Jr with the voice of wrestling, the hall of famer himself, the New York times, best-selling
0: author by God, Jim Ross,
1: Jim, how are you, man?
0: I'm good, buddy. I'm blessed. Uh, I'm, I'm getting used to being at home alone. Uh, I don't like it, but I'm getting used to it. I'm dealing with it. Uh, I'm being careful. I'm in that high risk group. Hence I'm not been, have been flying and I won't be flying again, probably for a while, uh, depending on the. Circumstance of this uh, stupid virus. I had a great conversation last week. Tony Khan called me and he said, "Man, I, you can't get sick, Jr." And I said, "I know, Tony. I don't want to get sick." He, so he said, "I don't want you to fly for a couple of three weeks. I want to see where this thing goes." And you know, I can't afford you to get sick, and I can't, you know, blah blah blah. I thought that was nice. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be doing some other work for them. And you know, the great thing about you see all these guys on TV that are broadcasting from their house, right? Hell, I, I did an interview yesterday, uh, this few days ago with the, uh, afternoon show a, afternoon show on, uh, in Las Vegas. And I, I did it on zoom.
1: <laughs> what was the last time you did, uh, a, a, an interview on zoom, Jim.
0: Never yeah. ever. Uh, but now I, it's a pretty cool little uh, gadget, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm uh, I, I've done that. So I'm, I'm learning things as I go along. Uh, I'm working as we were talking before we started recording. You know, both of us like to grill, you got your big green egg. I got my outdoor kitchen and the grill and all the good stuff. Uh, I'm having fun doing that. And you know, you find when you go to the grocery store and the, the supplies of groceries are very limited. Uh, you know, you, you end up picking things out that you normally would not buy. Right. And so I'm trying new things, uh, eating a lot of good protein and grilling it. And, uh, so I'm making the best of the situation. It's like everybody else. We've got to be smart. And I think when this thing first came out, I was a little defiant thinking, Oh, I can't be that bad. Come on. But it is, it is that bad and we all got to be careful. And so I'm glad I'm not flying. I'm glad Tony Khan supports that, uh, that, 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 that situation. And so, Hey, I, I'm, but other than that, you know, man, I'm feeling good. I don't have any symptoms. Uh, you know, I wish I was doing more work for AEW, but I, I'm not going to be stupid enough to. You know, for me to go to Jacksonville, for example, I got to go through three airports and two airplanes. Right. It's just too much risk. You know, you're, you're, you're. It's, a, it's a Russian roulette thing with your own health, and, and I, I can't afford that. I just can't afford to get sick at my age and, uh, and the situation as it is. So, we just got to be smart, Conrad. You know, you're doing the same thing. You know, you are working from your home, and, you know, I like the fact you telling that story where you every now and then you get in the car just to drive around and see what it looks like. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah.
1: It's almost like a snow day. You know, you and I have lived in the South our whole life. And,
0: yep. uh,
1: whenever we get just even an inch of snow, man, they just shut down town, and nobody's on the roads and it, it's sort of surreal to ride around. And, and there's nobody open and nobody on the road. And that's sort of what Alabama looks like right now. It looks like a snow day, but you know, 70 degrees.
0: Yeah. All right. 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 Well, Hey, uh, we're all in this together and I appreciate uh, the fact that we're getting a lot of great, pub, uh, positive, uh, feedback. Uh, on uh, our new venture, yeah, that started started about, about a week ago or so. So, and, I, and I'm I'm assuming I haven't talked to you much, but I'm assuming it's doing okay. Yeah, of
1: course, we're talking about adfreeshows. dot com. Uh, of course, I've got five podcasts here now on Westwood One, one every single weekday. Of course, Grill and Jr. drops every Thursday. But if you'd like to hear the show early and ad free, you can do so at adfreeshows. dot com. And had you already signed up for that, you would have heard this show last week because we're actually getting ahead. Uh, we've got free time right now, so why not? Well, we've also yep. got some great bonus content. You and I sat down to discuss the plane ride from hell, and you famously told me before we ever clicked record, you know, Mister Perfect and Razor Ramon had jobs when that plane took off. Oh, uh, so it's it's a fun trip down memory lane. Of course, we've got all the great bonus content you could ever shake a stick at from Eric's Patreon and Bruce's and Tony's. We've also got all the stage shows from Starcast. So there's tons of content if you're stuck at home and maybe quarantining. Check it out. adfreeshows.com But i tell you the way everybody I know has been passing the time this last week or so is reading under the black hat, which is available now at jrsbbq.com. You can get a personalized autograph, hardcover book, and it includes free domestic shipping on all book orders. It's jrsbbq.com and Jim, you've been doing all kinds of media to promote this. And every time I take a listen, people are putting it over as if not one of the Best wrestling book ever written.
0: Well, I appreciate their their uh, feelings in that regard. You know, it's the it the last it's my last big hug to Jan, uh, a public hug, and uh, it's a somebody told me the other day. Uh, my buddy said uh, my wife read your book in, in a in a in a long night. I said really. I said well, what she think about? I said she said I didn't know Jr. had an him to write a love story. Yeah, and I never heard that exact description of this book being a love story. But when you think about it in my, in, in sharing my memories and experiences with Jan, uh, uh, behind the scenes as the uh, talent relation heads, wife, uh, or our, our new stories. So this picks up this, uh, this book picks up right where Slobberknocker left off. Uh, we got paperback Slobberknockers also at our, at our site. And then I found out, uh, uh, not that long ago, uh, as we record this. Matter of fact, just a few hours ago, that uh, under the black hat is uh, the number one sports biography uh, on Amazon worldwide. So we're doing all right, and I think it's a great representation for the wrestling business and for the. And if it's good for the wrestling business, then it's good for the wrestling fans. So uh, I, I, our, our, the pro wrestling is uh, is healthy. I don't. And so I say, oh my God! How can you say that they have to do TV in a in an empty arena? Well, it ain't going to be that way forever. And but and, uh, the business is surviving. People are seeking it out, just like they're seeking out our podcast and all your podcasts. So uh, I'm a, I'm 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 happy. I'm happy that we're we got the book out. Uh, I I, I this makes me miss Jan even more, but it's worth it because I think people are going to really love this book and find out things that they never dreamed ever occurred. And you know, talking about Austin's last match in the business, and his, his weekend in the hospital before the before that match or changed the, the order of events at WrestleMania 19, uh, convincing the powers that be that Chris Jericho was a great hire, convincing people that Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero were not too short, you know, things like that. Uh, so it's, it's got some good stuff. And of course, nobody, uh, and I'm not, uh, and I mean this in a very good way. I was very privileged Conrad for 26 years to have a, a very unique relationship with Vince now, much like Bruce, Bruce could write a story. If he chose to somewhere down the road, he probably will. I'd like to read it about his experiences at WWE, because everybody, we all have a different set of uh, criteria. We all have different experiences. And so to be the head of talent, to be handling payroll, to be booking the live events during the most successful live event period of the business, uh, was, uh, a, an amazing time to be in a wrestling business. And I do write about it and I am honest and. I don't want to piss anybody off, but uh, you know it's all. Sometimes, Conrad, we find out that you know when you go back and look at it, I might not have been the easiest guy to manage.
1: Mm.
0: You know, Mm. I'll just be honest about it. And I tell people this: I wanted to run the wishbone, and McMahon wanted to run the spread. And guess who? What office are in?
1: You're in the spread.
0: You're damn right, we did. And so then, instead of me accepting that, like I just did there, I fought. I pushed back and those supporters that are around Vince that, uh, were also spread offense guys using that as an analogy. Uh, I, I didn't do well with those guys. Right. I, I thought they betrayed me. It's ego, ego and insecurities. And we find that rampant in the wrestling business. Uh, so anyway, but bottom line is the book's good, doing well. And I'm so grateful for it. You know, when I got a, uh, a text or a, a tweet or something that showed the, uh, Rankings in the UK, Canada, and and, in America, and to see in Australia, to see that under the black hat was the number one selling sports biography was, uh, pretty awe-inspiring. I'm really happy with that deal. So anyway, enough of that. So I, but I'm happy. Things are good. And it just goes to show you, if you don't give up your fight, if you are diligent and you, and you stay focused in, in your life, not making any more stupid mistakes, than I've already made. Uh, of, of my own volition that things are pretty doggone Good. So I'm happy. We have a hell of a show today. I, I feel good.
1: Well, I feel good too. Of course, we're going to be talking about clash of the champion six and, and we're doing this because it is WrestleMania season. Of course, WrestleMania is now in a rear view mirror and needless to say WrestleMania this year looked a little different than all the years prior, but, uh, all around, I think everybody's making the best of a, of a bad situation. AEW as well. Uh, it's been uh, weird to see how the products had to evolve, but. Man, everything is evolving. Almost everybody I know is working from home, and we appreciate all of you guys still supporting us here on the show, and and hope everybody is staying safe and staying healthy, and we'd love to have some feedback from you on the shows and and hear what you're liking more and what you want more of. So if you haven't already, follow us on social. Of course, Twitter is basically where everything with professional wrestling happens, so that's where we spend most of our time. It's at Jr. Grilling. If you could go ahead and throw us a follow there and give us some feedback. We want to hear what you'd like and we'll try to bring you more of that but what I loved this week was the chance to get back and uh, watch Clash of the Champions 6 one of my favorite shows from this era I absolutely love the year 1989 it's probably my second favorite year ever as a fan behind uh, 1997 this particular clash was called Raging Cajun and went down on April 2nd 1989 so as we're doing this it happened uh well a week ago and uh Superdome New Orleans Louisiana It's a big, big deal to run an event like this. The trouble is they sold less than 900 tickets the day before the event happened. There's just a 1300 paid attendance here in the freaking Superdome It's a $15,000 gate. There's 5,300 people there. So when you watch the tape, you think, well, there's more than 1300. Yeah. There's 4,000 comps there, uh, but only 1300 paid. And you and I were talking a little bit off air. Uh w- why do you think this thing drew so poorly and uh in in hindsight how big of a mistake was it to book the freaking Superdome
0: Well uh answer your last question first huge mistake obviously by the results uh you know Bill Watts had done great business at, from uh, various times in the Superdome it was our destination when he was doing angles or storylines he uh planned them to culminate to either to culminate basically in uh, in the Superdome uh, on Thanksgiving night, or our big summertime Superdome where people could come when the kids were out of school and travel to New Orleans and uh, see our show. The problem was was that uh, you know this is a this is the Flair Steamboat era, as good as it gets in 1989 or any other year. Flair and Steamboat were just magical, and they were both at a stage of their career where they. I don't want to say they had to prove something. I think they wanted to prove something that both guys still had the magic that they had back in the mid Atlantic area. And they did, as we all know, there's three matches in 1989 with Rick and, and, uh, and, uh, Ricky steamboat and and Nate were extraordinary in my view. I, as good as I've ever called. And so that match was so hot coming off the uh, Chi town rumble where steamboat upset flair and became the NWA champion or the world champion. Uh, whatever it was, uh, that, uh, uh that, that was the main event at house shows, right? So George Scott was the booker old school booker. Good man. Uh, had the success of WWF had success in, in Jim Crockett promotions, sharp guy. And I like George, but George got, uh, he was so worried about that match being on free TV flare and steamboat that he didn't want us to promote it. So the match and the card, the event was, was barely promoted. And I think that, uh, when they found out what the advance was and all that, they did, they finally started looking to what the reason, you know, they, I mean, Jim Hurt came to me and said, what the hell's going on? I think it was heard. Yeah, of course it was. Uh, that, uh, you know, what's going on down there. What do you? And I said, we're not promoting it. What do you mean you're not promoting it? Are you crazy? No, I'm just doing what I'm told. Who told you to do that? I said, Mr. Hurd, George is the booker. George Scott's the booker. I figured he talked to you about it. I didn't have to ask him, well, what do you want to do this? George? He's a superior. I just followed orders. And so then it got George in trouble, which cost George his job. So George Scott got fired in WCW because, uh, he did not want to promote that clash ticket sales, tune in nothing. So it pissed off the the bean counters because it's going to be a huge loss renting the dome. Seventy thousand people, seventy thousand capacity, and maybe more for wrestling. Quite frankly, because the fuel will be used, Uh, and 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 it was it's going to be a huge loser. Luckily, it got a decent rating, and luckily, as you said, Connie, you know, hell, it was a it was a it was not a bad show. No, but it just was poorly promoted. And it cost a managed job and, and that's what happened there. But I can tell you, try to get yourself motivated, setting, uh, uh setting there with a, and, and it's like in a, in a, in a big barn with nobody there, it's kind of like this deal. Now there's just nobody there. Right. S- so, uh, it was tough in that regard, but I, I do think that the promotion of the event kind of, uh, trumps, uh, the, uh, actual card, the poor promotion, uh, dropping the ball on that. It kind of became the signature of that raging Cajun event. And it's unfortunate because again, as we mentioned, there were some really good matches on there and, uh, but I can't, I couldn't get enough of flair and steam, but if that was the only match we had. I've been fine with it, but obviously you can't do that for two hours, but it was a, it was a, it was a dawning dawning weekend, uh, in new Orleans. It certainly wasn't like other, uh, wrestling event weekends in new Orleans that I have experienced in the past, uh, with mid South, uh, and cowboy.
1: Yeah, let's talk about that. You know, at this point Cowboys, you know, sort of folded up shop and um one of the reasons I've heard is it was, you know, becoming a uh, a bit of a recession in the area. It was uh in an economic slump and you know, ticket sales for live events were, were sort of starting to dry up. Why would why would anybody if you know that Watts couldn't couldn't get it done? Why would you think you would try to run the Superdome on such a a short window. I I say short window, because it feels like if you're going to run a dome show like that, you want months and months and months of promotion. Well, the town rumble happened February 20th. I mean, here we are not too terribly long after that April 2nd. I mean, just over a month later and we're running a freaking dome. It just, it doesn't add up.
0: Yeah. Bad leadership, bad decision-making. Uh, I'm sure it was done with the best intentions, obviously. But you got so many uh, cooks in the kitchen, uh, you know, this, this thing had a lot of different, uh, different agendas. George Scott believed that he had to protect the house show business. And by putting his main event at the house shows on free TV, as I mentioned earlier, was going to kill the house show business, which wasn't really good at that point in time anyway. Then he had the other agendas where you had TBS corporate wanting a, a, a television, a live first run, uh, television broadcast that gets a number that gets a rating. So they didn't care about what they, from what we promoted. They just cared about the end results of of the event because they, like anybody else that gets just a little bit of information on wrestling, they believe that they're capable and competent enough to book their own card. Just as good as that. And they, and maybe they could hell, I don't know. But bottom line of it is, is that, uh, we just, we had a lot of, uh, masters to serve. And sometimes all those different masters did not communicate. And this is a classic example. Uh, another classic example, of uh, poor communication within WCW that really at the end of the day was one of the primary reasons uh, that they went belly up.
1: We should mention, you know, when, when you're talking about George, not wanting to promote, or he wanted to run a house show business and not wanting to promote it on TV. The result is a 4.3 rating on TBS, which to this point is the lowest rated clash ever. And uh, of course it's going head to head with WrestleMania five, which is really a super show for the company. Uh, it's going to set all kinds of pay-per-view records. Of course, pay-per-view was in its infancy with WrestleMania three. That was more of a closed circuit type business for WrestleMania three, WrestleMania five. It really leveled up from where four was. And of course it's going to fall off a cliff for six. So it is a big time show happening at the Trump Plaza. The clash goes from three thirty until seven o'clock. And I guess in theory, wrestling fans were calling this super Sunday two. Of course, Super Sunday one would have been when Clash one went head to head with WrestleMania four, but a four point three rating—that's a rating that a lot of folks would be giving high fives about. But in this era, it was a different time, and it's considered a failure, huh?
0: Yeah, it, well, it underdelivered. I don't. The art, Artistically, it wasn't a failure, but uh, at the end of the day, the rating did not hold up. The house show, the uh, how, the attendance—it should say house show. The attendance was embarrassing. And I think as much as anything, that's what, that's what struck stuck with me. Was that it was, the, it was probably one of the few events in my life that I've ever been involved in that I wish I had not been. I would just, it just was a bad, bad feel. Going in, in a, in an arena that big with no more people there than that. And you could, it's just, it was a bad look. It's a bad sound. It just did not, uh, did not, did not, didn't work. So uh, I, I'm in, I'm embarrassed about that one, quite frankly. Uh, but you know, in, nonetheless, we had work to do. We went to new Orleans and we did it. And the, the, the thing I enjoyed most about that trip was, uh, uh, charbroiled oysters at, uh, I always <laughs> you know, go back to food Conrad for me and you. Right.
1: Absolutely. We know we're all a good eating ass. Let's talk about what Meltzer said. He said, leading up to this show, uh, he put this in the observer, the ultimate secret, the less said about the finances, the better they picked the wrong city, the wrong building. I don't even want to get into how badly this thing has been hyped, but this is a TV special and TBS has garnered good ratings for every clash with a lot weaker lineups and limited on-air promotion with the right hype. This is still the best day of the year for the NWA to run a TV show for ratings purposes because nobody is going to forget the day of the show by accident and go fishing. They may not want to watch WrestleMania, but those interested in the NWA will watch both. Uh, last year's show drew what is still the largest audience ever to watch an NWA telecast, even with the competition from both WrestleMania and the NCAA tournament, just because the show hasn't been well promoted. Well, it's actually barely even been mentioned. I don't see them doing the kind of ratings they did last year. Although with the main event they had scheduled, they do have that potential. Perhaps the late hype from the Friday night special will help the ratings a tad they've got a week undercard and a three and a half hour show which could mean trouble in maintaining the audience, but I can't see people tuning out before the main event, but the NWA is lacking momentum altogether at the same time. If there's anything TBS has shown it's the sense they've taken over this group while almost everything has gone down. They've put together two great pay-per-view shows. Despite all the weaknesses, this could be a good show as well. It feels like Dave is very, very optimistic that, Hey man, everything else may suck, but this main event may be enough to save it.
0: Yeah, of course. You know, Dave is a, was a big fan, as most people that had any product knowledge was of the Flair Steamboat rivalry because it, it, at one time it was just what they did in a territory was absolutely amazing. But the national audience never got to sample it, so it was the first go around for for somebody in Oklahoma to see Flair and Steamboat who might have had a match in Charlotte uh, or on Charlotte TV or whatever the case may be. Uh, but yeah, it was a uh, it was a uh, Meltzer liked that that main event. And he was hanging his hat, like many of us were, that the main event was going to get us back on the other side, come out whole on the other side. And, uh, it, unfortunately the rating was not good. Uh, you know, and I, and I, you know, my, my grandma and my grandpa owned a a mercantile in Westville, Oklahoma for many, many years, decades, since the thirties through, you know, 50 years here in business. And, uh, you know, my, my, my grandpa always said, you know. You can't sell goods out of an empty wagon. And I use that a lot because I believe in that concept, but our wagon was empty promotionally. We we purely marketed. And so there are a lot of fingers to point. Why didn't TVS intervene earlier? Were they not watching the shows where were the matches uh, at the clash six would be, uh, talked about, I guess not because until the very last week, until they discovered that the show had gotten no love, no promotion. Uh, that, you know, we got to do something. And again, like I said, it, unfortunately, instead of solving a problem and communicating better, they just fired George Scott thinking that's going to solve that. George was the cause of this issue. George was not the cause of the issue. Somebody should have told him what they wanted to do because he was running it like an old school wrestling company. I'm not going to expose my main event. that I'm booking around the territory, around the loop and put it on free TV. You just didn't do that in those days. And, uh, so that's kind of where we were with that thing.
1: Hey guys, are you looking for a great father's day gift idea? I know I was, and I found it a couple of years ago with paint your life with paint your life, you get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mom, your dad, or both. You see, paint your life transforms your photos into a one of a kind, beautiful hand painted portrait done by professional artists. You can upload a photo to create anything you can imagine, maybe in a special location or a favorite pet. There's lots of options. You pick the artist, the medium and you even get to work with the artist to make sure it's perfect. You get started in less than five minutes, and you can get the portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com, and there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited-time offer, get 20% off. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, text the word ROSS to 87204. That's Ross to 87204. Text Ross to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details.
0: Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely
1: than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make
0: more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen.
1: Let me ask, and I know this sounds really simplistic, but I think you'll get where I'm going with it. How much of the failures in this Sort of regime of WCW. You know, I guess really for the rest of WCW's run, the entire time Turner owns it. Perhaps how much of that is based on it wasn't their money. I know that sounds silly, but Vince McMahon wouldn't have forgotten to promote his TV special. No, uh, it, it's it's his money. He knew what he had in in the rental agreement for the Superdome, so he's going to make sure he gets a return on that. But when you hire other people to be managers, quote unquote but it's not their money and they don't have any skin in the game. That has to change the way they approach everything. Does it not?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You, they, uh, that's why and we've talked about this before. One of the great secrets of really successful bookers was that when they brought a top talent in, they made sure that top talent had a, some role in that talents creative, where you could refine an idea. You could, you could build on an idea. You could, you could, you could communicate the keyword and, and maybe blow that idea up and restart, but you wanted your top guys to buy into your creative concept for booking. So back in the way, back in the day, when cowboy bill Watts was the top babyface in mid South and the owner and the booker, uh, his big inflow of talent was normally heels. And he knew how to build a heel. He knew how to get a heel ready for a big event. And again, uh, the Superdome. Was a destination, so uh, whether it be in the summers I mentioned or the Thanksgiving night extravaganza that became a staple, uh, so it it just it, it was just a really a a weird like you, this is just wrong. It's like you're right about the money skin in the game, uh, and but the key thing was communication. Too many chiefs, a lot of cooks, whatever the cliché you want to use. It just was not good communication. And I always believe in my tenure there at WCW, which I did enjoy, you know, I love living in Atlanta, uh, and I love working for Turner. The checks are always there. You know, you had, you had benefits and for as an employee. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it, but it was just a shame that, you know, we all collectively dropped the ball on that thing. And I certainly sort of don't mind taking my share of the, uh, the blame, but it just was embarrassing. It was just, I look at the whole event. <clears throat> It was an embarrassment as far as pro wrestling is concerned. And Conrad, you're exactly right. Very astute observation with McMahon have allowed the well, McMahon would not have booked the Superdome for the show, TV show, first of all. And I don't know why we did. Right. I think the, the, the fact that sounding like, oh, it's going to be big. It's going to be spectacular. It's going to be a real true extravaganza. It's can't miss television because it's, well, they're coming on the Superdome. It's going to be big. Well, you know, they had to be very creative in how they shot that damn thing, or it would look like a ghost town it looked like it looked like the, uh, the, the virus was also in new Orleans, like it is now, unfortunately. And, uh, and, and we just went through the motions. I, I, I just, I hated it. I, I just thought very poorly of what we did. And, but again, it was, it's what's so we're talking about it.
1: Let's talk about some other news heading into the class here. Paul Bosch passes away on March 7th. We've recently touched on Paul Bosch a little bit here on the show. Uh, do you have any, any funny or interesting stories about Paul? You, you've sort of said that maybe he didn't always treat you the best and maybe he wasn't your favorite person, but was there ever any sort of funny Paul Bosch story in your life?
0: Funny. I don't know. Funny. Uh, you know, I always, if you got Mr. Bosch talking about himself and his experiences in the business, uh, he was about as entertaining a guy as you can, you can meet his office in Houston, his old wrestling office in Houston was like a, a wonderful museum. And I always enjoyed going to Houston. You know, I, I, Bruce and I were hooking up at that point in time and as buddies and, you know, we're young and, and goofy and and uh I, he had a new friend for me and, and I like Bruce then, I like him now, but nonetheless, uh the food was good down there and, and they Bruce knew all the great places to eat or get to go food bring in to eat. But boy, being a fan of wrestling, which I was and still am to sit in that office and look at all that memorabilia. I remember he had the, the death mask of the French angel. And I thought that it's things like that. Just, uh, just astonished me. So, uh, and, and all the pictures of all the celebrities and all the different things. And the other thing about Mr. Bosch, I always respected and I still do was his uh, benevolence to his community of Houston and all the fundraising he did and all the great things he did there for the city, you know, I think, I think, uh. Mr. Bosch probably discovered mattress, Mac, Jim McElbank, McEl, what's his name? McEl, McInvale, McInvale. Yeah. What a nice man. Golly. I saw a tweet from him the other day, uh, helping people get food and things in Houston. And that's to me, that was, he learned that from Paul Bosch. Sure. Paul Bosch was just a tremendous, uh, a civil servant, so to speak within his community. So even though he and I probably had a difference in philosophy. And the fact that I thought we should change a few things, little things. We didn't have headsets when we did Houston Wrestling. We did a stick mic. I had one stick mic, as I've pointed out. And we sat in folding chairs with no desk at ringside. And it was hard to hear, hard to communicate. How's your tone? How's your inflection? Because you couldn't hear yourself. So the little things like that I, I didn't like. But I, I don't want to say that at the end of the day that I just didn't like Paul Bosch. I didn't like some of this old school. Uh, uh, beliefs. I thought that could have been, uh, uh, you know, done better. And then when Cowboys started booking a uh, Houston with the mid South talent and JYD was hot and Jim Duggan was hot. and Junkyard dog was hot. You know, we had all these guys are over. Uh, I thought that, uh, we might have left some money on the ground, but Cowboy did a hell of a job. And, and I think it was the most lucrative time in Houston wrestling territory, history. Now, if it wasn't, and somebody will probably correct me on that. Uh, and Bruce may know you can ask him sometime, but I think it was one of the most lucrative periods in Paul's run there as a promoter all after all those years, but the bottom line, the thing I take away from the Paul Bosch experience for me was that Mr. Bosch taught me that it's great to give back to your community. And I think now in this era where we are now, this virus and stuff, it's a great lesson to take with you. There's, we can't do too much for our communities and those. Less fortunate to live in those communities, and Paul was a big uh, proponent of that. And for that, I've always uh, appreciated and respected what he did.
1: Let's uh, let's talk about some other behind the scenes news and notes here. Meltzer wrote, right. Heavy pressure has been put on everyone to sign contracts, and just about every key main eventer has re-signed the new deal, with the exception of Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express. Their deal runs out in April, I believe. Ric Flair and sting have agreed to new terms while the road warriors and Lex Luger are still locked in through the remainder of 89, through their existing contracts, not sure of Wyndham's status. Although talk as he's close to signing as well, the crew, like Paul Lee, Dr. death, rotunda Sullivan and Steiner have all either signed or agreed to a certain price and are working out the details. Talk to me a little bit about this regime. And, and now that, you know, the Crockets are out now it's Turner. We got to get everybody under contracts. Did the boys, in your opinion, I know you weren't necessarily handling it at this time as part of talent relations for WCW, but do you think their attitude changed of, Hey, these aren't just sort of mom and pop multi-generation promoters. This is now a major corporate entity. I can probably get a little more money now.
0: Yeah. And I think that, uh, uh the fact that they got guaranteed contracts and that they were, they could take, uh, and they were on weekly, got their checks weekly. Uh, was a big relief to the household that these wrestlers lived in. Uh, so I think a lot of them are relieved that they you know, look wrestlers like anybody else, football players, wrestlers, actors, <clears throat> we, we, they always want to make more money. We all want to make more money. Conrad that's, that's part of the chase here is making more money and, and being, and being able to provide better <clears throat> Pardon me for your, for your loved ones. So I don't think it was a big deal, a negative deal whatsoever. Uh, cause all those guys that signed could have gone to WWF if they'd have wanted to at that time. Uh, I mean, Vince would have loved to take some of those stars. You think Vince would want to sign sting or Luger Uh, early on in 89? Of course he did. So, uh, anyhow, I, I, that's, that's the the way I see that thing is that, uh, the talent's got some security and some stability. Cornette and the midnight expresses issue was corny felt like, I believe I'm not going to speak for him that they were being undervalued and that a tag team, uh, with two athletic, although, although somewhat regular looking tag team, uh, and, and the, well, they don't have the value. I, I did never agreed with that. I thought the midnight express and Jim Cornette were the, one of the greatest assets that we could have had in WCW. And the fact that if, even if, if they weren't getting a big push, which everybody wants, as we know. Uh, that they, Cornette was great to have on the booking committee. Uh, he's a great finished guy, good creative, good helping creative with, with ideas and things. And I thought that Bobby and Dennis, and then Bobby and Stan were, I, I, you know, you have to look awful hard to find a better heel team. than those two cats, uh, and that, that, midnight express they're, they're just, they set the bar and they, they revolutionized what being a smooth. I think you see that a lot in the uh, revival. The tag team revival, when you see those guys on TV and WWE, uh, I, that's, I think those guys are influenced a great deal by, they both are Southerners. They both grew up, you know, watching, uh, uh, NWA and WCW more than th- the other brands. So, uh, it was, uh, I don't know. It was, a uh, interesting time, but I didn't have anything to do with the, I mean, i i made some suggestions on what I thought guys would want or what guys would settle for, whatever, where you want to put it. But a lot of those guys are making $156,000 a year, which means they got to check every week for $3,000. Right. So if you drew the house, you got, you know, that's one thing, but you're going to get, that money was going to be your money. No matter what you're guaranteed this money and by doing it in, in 52 week increments, it's going to co- it's going to, uh, make you $3,000 a week. And I think that was, uh, kind of the normal number. Now it wasn't for Sting or, or for Rick, obviously. Luger, those other guys have got got more than three grand a week, obviously. But the bottom line is that most guys got to three K a week, and so 156 was the magic number for a lot of cats and jammers in that important time.
1: Let's talk about uh, this is all during the Jim Hurd era, as you said earlier. And there's been lots of rumor around, hey, what sort of Jim Hurd's rules were? He was going to change some things. I want to run through some of these and sort of let you respond. Uh, number one, all wrestlers, managers, referees, and other officials must be in the building one hour before the start of the card. I don't think that's unrealistic.
0: Nope.
1: Uh, number two, baby faces and heels can't be seen mixing in public together in 1989. I'm for that.
0: Yep. Me too.
1: Number three, no profanity on the mic at house shows or on TV, including using the word ass, butt, or whatever. Also no off color gestures either in TV, uh, in the ring on a house show or on TV. So off color gestures, you can imagine some sort of sexual innuendo or the middle finger, but the word, "butt" and ass in 89, I guess maybe ass was a little controversial, but, "butt" that seems a little overboard.
0: Yeah. I'm sure that was a TBS mandate just to say, we're going to shut her down right here because if you give the guys an inch, I'll take a mile. Sure. So it was just that just trying to govern the, the sophomore class.
1: Uh number four, wrestlers or managers are not allowed to use the house mic before intermission. That one really stood out to me. I don't really understand it, but I'm sure you do.
0: Well, I do I really don't. Uh I just think it's another man, way of managing and uh and and keeping the rudder in the water and keeping the focus on what we're doing and and preventing guys from going into business for themselves, Conrad, uh, because a lot of them just weren't capable of making those the best decisions. Would would I care if Jim Cornette wanted to cut an interview before intermission? Hell no! I'd I'd encourage it, because he's good, he's really good. But there we had others that weren't really good that also thought that they were. So uh, I I don't know the exact reason. I'm sure somewhere along the way, somebody got the bright idea to cut a promo, and it kind of slows things down, and then you take an intermission. It kind of kills the momentum sometimes of a show if that promo that we're that somebody's ad living isn't on the money. And apparently more often than not, they were not on the money.
1: Uh, needless to say, uh, number five, no low blows. I guess I can get with that. Number six, no using chairs, tables, or the guard railing, probably a TBS thing.
0: Yeah. No lawsuits protecting their ass CYA. Uh, you know, so, uh, and the, the chair shots. You know, at, at the, you know, now that we know, we know about CTE, that probably was a very good rule because it was a shortcut for a lot of guys. So it's like getting juice, getting bleeding, you know? So sometimes it's a way to facilitate a match that, that needs help. And that's a that, and that's the route you, that you take. And sometimes it's just not tasteful or timely.
1: Let's keep it rolling here. Uh, number seven, no more than one man on the floor at a time before intermission. That's. An interesting thing to me. This is just, you know, somebody's flavor of wrestling, I assume, right? Like we got to save something for the main event. I don't know what what do you make of that?
0: I think it was just uh, management uh making these calls based on previous experiences that just were not very flattering. It's a little bit overboard. Uh you set stringent rules as we did and it was done. Uh and you hope the guys can will will we'll comply with them. So there were some, there were some stiff things that you're, you're missing here. And, you know, I don't think I've ever seen this list. I've seen it back in the day in 89, but I, I kind of forgot this memo. Uh,
1: number eight, no touching referees. Uh, again, I think that's, uh, more about the presentation and, and probably not a bad call.
0: Not a bad call at all. Referees aren't going to draw you any money. You're not going to wrestle the referee. Uh, keep the into this very day referees today. Or about as about as they've made them. They've neuter most, most companies have neutered the refs, and and there's also a shortage of great referees. Uh, you know, uh, when I was at WWE, we had Timmy White, we had Mike Kyoto, we had the Hebners. You know, we had all kinds of great referees. You know, Jack Dome was a good referee. We had really really good referees there, and then over the years, much like the managers. It's become a lost art. So you see guys now, no matter what level they're on, they're out of position. They look like, they look like they're just a, a, a side piece of the performance art of what's going on instead of representing authority. And because a lot of the boys just didn't respect the referees and, uh, thought they get some cheap heat. So bumping, pushing, shoving. Look, how many times we've we seen Flair push Tommy young Yeah. and Tommy young push Flair back and Flair take a bump. He loved it. He loved it. The crowd loved it, but under these rules, that's a no, no.
1: Let's uh, take a look at some more rules here. Uh, number nine wrestlers must dress in collared shirts when entering and leaving the arena. Boy, this would give some guys some heartache when the WWE did it. What do you remember about this rule way back when here?
0: Well, I think it's much to do about nothing. So we're saying that we don't want you to come to work wearing a, a golds gym t-shirt and zoo boss, right? We want you to look like you're successful and like a pro athlete. And, uh, that was not always the case. Uh, and guys they would just dress as casually as they could because they wanted it was for their comfort, not their image where they weren't worried about their image as much as they were their quote unquote comfort and looking or being cool. If I never see another pair of Zubaz pants. In a, in a formal like setting, when you come to work at a major arena, and you're working for a cutting like Turner broadcasting and you don't look like you're an athlete. You're not dressed like it. You don't, you're not dressed for success. It's a knock on everybody and it, it takes a business down a knot. So I don't, I don't really have any problem. With that collar shirt thing. I really didn't. I thought it was just when those was people, people were bitching about it. I thought it was just much to do about nothing. Conrad
1: number 10, no spitting at any time on either TV or house shows. How weird. Well,
0: yeah. Well, you know, it's. It made sense. It's, it's classless. And you, if you did it, you did it, you do it, uh, maybe uh, sparingly to shoot an angle or something, somebody spit in somebody's face or act like they did. It's just hygiene, you know, and obviously now we know that spitting is, is really, really weak and it's not safe and it's not classy. And does it really work is, or just is it just another, n- another trip down the low road?
1: Uh, next one here, this is, uh, I guess you might as well call it the flare rule. No pulling down tights. Got to be a flare rule, huh?
0: Yeah. We don't need to see anybody's ass anymore. <laughs> I mean, we all know everybody needs a new ass because their old one's cracked. We got that. And I think that's what that was. That was, it might've been the flare rule because nobody did it better or more often than age. Number
1: 12 wives, girlfriends, children, and pets aren't allowed backstage. Seems like maybe that one got out of hand and they wanted to rein it back in.
0: Well, yeah, uh, people were taking liberties about who could come, who they brought in, in this sanctuary, the backstage area, a lot of talents complained about that too, because sometimes guys would bring their girlfriends right, and, and, uh, so they'd be around another wife that knew the guy was married, but he wasn't with his wife. He was with his girlfriend. It just became classless in some sense. And you go to work, I don't know why we should always believe that you know, I don't see any NFL players wise on the sideline very much. Nope. Or they're sure as hell in the locker room. Nope. So I don't, I didn't have a big problem with that deal because, uh, sometimes the, the talents can be their own worst enemies and then make themselves look bad inadvertently as, as this was, this was, but I thought it was an, I don't think that rule was bad You had It had to be stopped somewhere along the way. And so instead of picking out one or two guys. You had to do it for everybody. So that's what the, that's the story of that deal. And you know, I don't know how, how hard that was enforced. I don't know that anybody's wife that was there, uh, that came backstage and they got ran off or anything like that. They may have, I don't know, but I, I just don't, I just don't think it was a, a big deal. And I think some talents probably appreciated it. Last
1: one. And this is an interesting one. Uh, no long distance phone calls from the WCW offices in Atlanta by wrestlers. <laughs> uh, so, the question is, who overdid it and ran up a big bill and got everybody's attention?
0: Oh, somebody did. Somebody did. You know, I, I don't know if there's specifically any one person, but when guys would come to the office to pick up their check or, or to get their booking sheet or whatever it may be, long before Texas and, and things of that, of that nature, you had to come get a hard piece of paper. Uh, everybody didn't have a fax machine, uh, it wasn't on the email. It wasn't email then to any degree. So, uh, uh, but they come to the office and hang out and then they get on the telephone. Of course you hit, you know, you get a, all you gotta do is hit nine. You got an outside line and have at it. And I, I think some guys were defiant, took advantage of that situation. They didn't, they didn't, they thought they, they were deserving of free phone calls. And I don't know where, it, where anybody get that idea. Uh, especially if you're calling a long distance and here's the deal. Conrad, let's be honest about it. But, but a lot of these guys are calling their girlfriends. Sure. They weren't talking to their wives. They weren't talking to their kids. How's their day at school, son? Wasn't that, I don't think anybody would have cared about that. But I think guys are just, uh, they got away from, uh, their home phone number and the calls were unnoticeable by the significant others. So guys are coming in and, and, uh, doing their little romance, their side romances and some, and using sometimes the office telephone there. Look. There was a ton of people in that office. It took up a whole damn floor. So there's a lot of phones on, on these, a lot of phones and empty desks. Yeah. You go to Cuba, you sit down, who knows who you're talking to? Right. But I think the, the word came out that it was a lot of the guys were taking advantage of the situation, and they were. So I, I didn't think that was a bad rule either, quite frankly, at the end of the day. There was a cause for all these things. Sure. And were they over legislated? Arguably. But they, they were there for a reason. And normally the reasons Conrad were guys, like I said, the boys sometimes are, are their own worst enemy.
1: Let's talk about another one of the boys Meltzer would report. Brian Pillman was given an early April start date and three different names have been mentioned as possible tag team partners for him. One of whom works here and it would be a disaster. Two of whom would be welcome newcomers. What are your memories of Brian's early days in the NWA? And did you play a role in, in helping him get signed here?
0: I sure did. Uh, uh, a mutual friend of Brian and mine is uh, Kim Wood. Kim Wood was a strength and conditioning coach for the Cincinnati Bengals. Of course, Brian grew up in Cincinnati and played for the Bengals for a while. Uh, Kim Wood was a, is a very, very respected uh, strength and conditioning guy in the NFL for years and years. He was, he had a couple of OU guys on his team. And so he, he got my address, I think from Meltzer. Cause I subscribed to the observer back then as well. And, uh, so he started writing me. He started sending me swag and he, then all, every time he would communicate with me, it was something about Brian in that communication. And so then I started looking at some tape and I started getting, requesting some tape, blah, blah, blah. And I love Brian. I loved his energy and his enthusiasm, and his athleticism. He was a great student of the game. Uh, of course he's the same old shit you get from guys. Well, he's not very big. Well, okay. All right, easy. Easy, easy, take it easy here. Uh, don't be everybody. ain't going to be six, three and 250 pounds. So yeah, I, I, and I convinced, uh, and when the other, when the other guys on the booking committee saw Brian's work, we, I had no pushback on hiring Brian Pillman there. I wasn't the hiring guy, but I could suggest people. And I did a lot of guys. I suggested Mark Calloway. I suggested Mick Foley. Uh, and I wasn't the only guy that was singing their praises. Cornette and I were on the same page on a lot of those talent acquisitions, believe it or not. So Brian was a, was a, was a unique, unique kid. And I, I had no issues hiring him and uh, getting him hired. And I don't regret it one bit. I wish it had ended better for Brian. God bless him. I'm proud of this kid, uh, Brian Pillman jr's out there trying to do his thing. And it's not a hard, it's hard to walk out of that shadow of your old man. who was such a larger than like character. So but Brian was a Brian was a keeper and I'm sure glad that we we got it. So Kim Wood, then I worked the Stu Hart, because Brian was working at Calgary at the Stampede Wrestling. So Kim Wood, Stu Hart, and of course Brian was ready to move and get to go from Calgary TV, I'm knocking it now. Ed Wayland was a great announcer there. He always said that we're having a malfunction at the junction. So I love that for some crazy ass reason. So uh, Brian was ready to move. He's ready to come back to the states and and get his break on national television in America. So it was a it was a good hire. I'm, I'm really tickled that we, we 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 made that connection. And we l- Brian was perceived as probably because of his size, he might be better off in a tag. And if you're going to do that, you want to tag him as partner with somebody that's a little bit bigger than him. Right. So you can offset that size issue if there is an issue with a viewer. And I I know, uh, gosh, you know, the best partner he had was stone cold. Uh, but, uh, I think we, I think Tom Zink was his partner for a while. And uh, the, the sad part about Tom, Tom had an amazing look, really good abilities, but I never could connect that, that Tom was a, a big mark for lack of a better term, uh, with the business. He looked at it more of a job, and I—I just—I I might be wrong there too. I'm not sticking ill the dead again. If you get pissed off when I do that, but just telling the truth, it, Tommy didn't have the passion that Brian did, and that soon showed.
1: Let's talk about uh, somebody who had a lot of passion for the business. That's Magnum T. A. Uh, in the newsletter, uh, Meltzer would report. Michael Hayes will team up with, uh, Jim Ross on the Saturday TBS show starting this weekend. So Magnum TA won't be around. It's a cold business. Of course, we're just a handful of years removed from, uh, Magnum's tragic accident that brought his in-ring career to an end. And it looks like TBS is going to be shifting gears here. Why was Magnum TA not the right fit?
0: I think the fact that he didn't have a great deal of television broadcast experience, uh, they wanted that. He was also a babyface color guy, analyst, whatever role you however you want to determine that role. I think that was a problem for some people because they were more accustomed to the heel commentator, uh, and with or the babyface play-by-play guy. The babyface play-by-play guy is almost a necessity because you gotta trust somebody in the on the broadcast. You gotta trust somebody, and if somebody's always making jokes in a negative way and not putting the talent over. I don't know who that helps. Uh, if you hear it on a steady diet of it, so to offset that to some degree, the play by play guy, quote unquote, has to be a baby face to some level, not a, you know, a a surfy sickening baby face, but you got to be honest. You got to, you got to steer the line. You got to tell the truth in the context of the job. And so they had me for that role. Uh, you know, I tried to fill. And then, so I think Michael Hayes was that, that, talkative heel and they go back and look at some of the work that Hayes and I did together in UWF, uh, for cowboy. And it, Michael was very good. He was very good. Uh, I'm sure if he was doing color today, he'd be better than anybody WWE's got, but that'll never happen because the look and all this other stuff, age that they can't say, but nonetheless, Hayes is talented. Right. But I think the, I just think that they thought that Magnum would have been better suited in another role, if they're going to use you on television and not as your analyst, but I'll tell you, uh, the first big show he worked and maybe the first show of any magnitude, no pun intended was in Chicago. I thought he did a hell of a job. I thought he did a hell of a job. He followed me because as he should have, because I was the veteran experience and I was going to try to help him. And I did, and I still love the time I worked with, with Terry and he's still a great friend, but I just think that the baby face role him, him filling that role as a baby face became a little bit challenging for the decision makers. Let's,
1: uh, before we move on, I guess I need to ask, did you see the the clip that popped off a few weeks ago of you and Michael Hayes talking <laughs> when you were in a commercial? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, just to catch everybody up, a, a clip went a little underground viral and, uh, it's a match, ha- it's a tag match happening for, uh, Bill Watts and It's got you and Michael Hayes on the call and you guys are clearly doing it live and you go to commercial and during commercial, you both tried to pop each other with how many times you could drop an F-bomb. It was (laughs) hilarious. Uh, does it surprise you to see any of that stuff, uh, released and, and make its way to, uh, to Twitter in 2020.
0: Yeah, it does. I don't know where it was even, where it was even stored or housed. I know there was a guy that worked for cowboy. That helped Joel Watts uh, building videos and producing TV and vignettes, named Bob Von Gertie. And don't ask me to spell his name. I can spell Bob, I can spell Von Gertie. I got no clue. <laughs> <clears throat> but I think he had access to a lot of outtakes. And, you know, when you do live TV, live promos, uh, different, different environments, you're going to have some bloopers, uh, uh, as we know. And so I think Bob Bonchurchy. I'm not sure I may be wrong about this, but I'm thinking Bob may be uh, one of the guys that he just kept all that stuff that, are uh, filed it away or however, however you do that. And, uh, uh, but I am surprised to see that stuff. I seen, I saw something else like that somewhere down the road and it was embarrassing because I said some real stupid things. Uh, I don't know, kind of very sexist and chauvinistic, imagine that. Uh, so I've seen it before, but that was a new one where we were F bombing it. We're just having a, we're just riffing. Yeah. We're at, we're at living. We're just, we're in a break. Uh, you and guys are
1: having fun and it was, you can tell you're having fun.
0: That's all we were doing, but I never expected to see that again on uh, never thought it would live to see that a, a, a day, but it did. And I got a lot of feedback on that deal. I, I'm not real proud of it. I don't want my grandchildren to see grandpa F bombing his way through life, but it was, it was kind of funny, man. Let's talk
1: about sting. He's going to win the TV title for micro Tunda on March 29th, but the match, the match was said to be so bad that they redo it the next night with Sting winning the title. Uh, and this is the match that aired on Saturday night. You don't hear about this very often. What made this match so bad and, and how common was that? Where it's just not what you were hoping for. Let's just go do it again.
0: Now, uh, I, I lost you somewhere there. What happened?
1: Apparently they did a title switch for the TV title with Mike Rotunda dropping the title to sting,
0: Yeah, but they
1: didn't, they didn't like the match. So they redid it the very next
0: night. Well, yeah, that luxury. And if we, if it, that happening was only for one reason to protect sting, right? That, that's all and not to knock Mike Rotunda. was a damn solid hand. He kind of got you one on your team, by the way, uh, but that that was all that was. They didn't have a good they didn't have a good outing. It was probably overbooked or underbooked, depending on your perspective. And uh Sting was the gonna be the big money player. And so protecting Sting was uh, was paramount. And so I think that's the only reason it was re- retaped, is because the first match in the view of the decision makers sucked.
1: Meltzer would say that Ranger Ross is going to debut on TBS over the weekend and looked a lot better than he expected. He says that he's working really hard to make his big break work, but the trouble is he's about four years too late on the super Patriot gimmick. He's also excited to see that Keiji Mudo is going to be debuting as the great Muda, but he finds it interesting that he's going to be, um, the son of Kabuki and blow the green mist and make him a heel. He felt like with his hot moveset, he should have perhaps been a baby face. We've talked yep. a lot about Muda. What about Ranger Ross though? Coming in uh, he has almost like a GI Joe persona. Maybe Meltzer thinks, uh, with Sergeant Slaughter getting hot with that. Maybe a half decade prior. This is a little late
0: and Meltzer on that situation would be right. Uh, uh, Ranger Ross was a, uh, I think he was a, a, a little army Ranger, African-American guy from Georgia, uh, good physique. Athletic physique, not, not overly muscular, but very athletic, a really nice guy. I just think he was hit with a, he was saddled with a very dated TV persona. And as a result of this being dated, he just never got over. So, uh, wrong gimmick, wrong time, but a really nice guy. And, uh, just, you know, you appreciate what he did for our country, but he, he is, his gimmick was, was just had already seen its best days. And, and sometimes you just can't resurrect those when they, when they, when the, when the, when the, lightning goes out and the, the power's off, you can't see nothing. It's just nothing, not there. So he was a really good guy and I wish he could have got over, but when you look back at the gimmick, the gimmick was, uh, was way past, uh, the shelf life was over for that particular, uh, GI Joe type thing.
1: Some big news happens right before the class, Jim Cornette and Stan Lane leave the NWA, but somehow Bobby Eaton winds up sticking around. Um, lots has been, lots has been written about this. It's been discussed a lot, not only in Jim's book, but on all his podcasts. And, uh, but I've never really talked to you about your perspective of this. It does feel like uh, Meltzer even classified them leaving as an almost an inevitability, uh, but it comes to, uh, comes to pass. Right before the clash, the official word is they can't come to terms on a new contract, but Meltzer says it really goes a lot deeper than that. And it started prior to the TBS takeover of the NWA. Apparently the Turner brass felt that 225 per year that, uh, Cornette Eaton and lane got with Jim Crockett was all too high based on the amount of revenue the company was producing. Ah, <sighs> things get worse with George Scott there, their TV time is cut down. Cornette's no longer allowed to communicate during his team's television matches, which was really his trademark for years. A cut down on his interview time. It just feels like somebody somewhere is not a Cornette fan. What'd you make of this? You were there. You had a ringside seat for it.
0: Yeah, I did. Uh, well, you know, George was not sold on the midnight express for whatever reason, I don't know if it was old, some, somebody, he got pissed off over something. Uh, that was personal. I had no idea, but I was always shocked at that because I always perceived that George Scott was a, a very, had a very solid pro wrestling mind and had, had had success in other places, how he could not see the great talent involved in uh, the midnight stress carried with him. Now I can't speak on the fact that did two twenty five each, uh, which means that, uh, you're looking at what the seven, 700 grand a year, uh, something like that, whatever it is, 750 grand a year, quarter of a million dollars a year for one act It's how they perceived it. So I think they felt like the price was a little, a little heavy. I, I always felt like that they, again, you don't want to get rid of the best talker in the business, right? Considered by many. And, and you don't want to get rid of a tag team that can make any team, whether it be baby face or heel be perceived as better. That was a very strategic error. And, uh, it was just unfortunate that it happened that way, but there's no way in the world, if I had been in a position to influence the decision more that we would not have come to some kind of a compromise in terms of the midnight express, you just don't let talent on that level walk away.
1: Yeah. And it comes to a head here. Apparently, uh, they're offered a new figure between a hundred and $125,000 for the new year. Again, they've all been making 225, So we're wanting them to take a, basically a 50% pay cut. And when creative comes up, they're told that, uh, Hey, we want you to put over the Samoan SWAT team and, uh, Paulie dangerously. So it feels like they're just an afterthought. I think Jim has said that George Scott didn't like them and he booked them to lose every night. They've been uh, putting over the Samoans every night, uh, which they do with this clash. And then they put their notice in and we're supposed to finish up in April, but then they got fired uh, or, or they fired Scott first. And he says, after he was fired, a booking committee is put in place consisting of Eddie Gilbert, Kevin Sullivan, Rick flair, yourself, Jim Hurd, and Jim Barnett. And after Scott was fired, uh, corny says that you came up to him and asked him to stay. And he said, no, he wanted to take a break because of how much they'd been getting beat and he had already taken some dates in may for continental. And, um, in theory, the idea is they're going to take some time off and come back. Did you think that this was going to be the end of Jim Cornette working with WCW? Or did you feel like your relationship would be enough to bring him back in?
0: Well, I felt like my relationship was going to be solid because Corny and I got along well, and he trusted me and I trusted him. Uh, I respected what he did Always, Look, you got to remember, you know, I, I remember it's funny how you remember certain things. The first interview that Cornette ever did in mid South was an introductory two minute interview inside one of our, t- our TV shows about the, uh, midnight express arriving on the scene. So it was an introductory interview in that regard. It was me sitting by the podium, little podium stand there and him standing beside me with his tennis racket in his hand. And he did about a minute and 50 seconds of, uh, blasting me. A gut and quarter of my ass. I mean, he he hit me with every every Memphis line in the world. Right. And uh we got the and I listened and well, they're here for Jim Cornette, ladies and gentlemen, the manager of the Midnight Express. You they're one of the great teams in all of wrestling, and you're gonna see them soon, type deal. Just a generic type bow. So then Cornette starts to walk away and watches, says, Hold it. We're gonna do that over. Uh and Corney looks at him incredulously, like, "What was wrong?" He said, "Well, first of all, I'm never going to book you two fat bastards against each other in a, in a wrestling ring as long as I'm as long as I'm in the business. So you're cutting an angle or cutting a promo, basically shooting an angle. You didn't mention hardly any of our talent. You didn't mention any of our tag teams. You didn't mention any of our stars. All you did was make it between you and the announcer, me." So he said, I don't do business that way and we're not going to do it here. You're not know we're not, and I'm not starting now. So he gave Corny a little ass chewing. Uh, and you know, I figured I'm going to get it next like, and you should just stop the interview yourself, Jim. You know, well, well, I don't do that. You stop it. You says, well, you're here. You're the boss. You're the producer. So, uh, Corny came back in a, in a matter of seconds and it had by the time he walked from his spot where he's walking away back over to the podium. He'd already got his interview in his head. That's how good he was. And so he cuts back and he cuts an interview that was master class. He hit the baby faces. He had a little intrigue with the midnight express and blah, blah, blah. It was great. It was great. But, uh, that's how talented the son of a gun was, but he was so used to the, uh, heels, making fun of Lance Russell, banana nose and this, that, and the other. And of course, Lance just went along with it. He didn't care. That's their style. Right. So, uh, you know, but it wasn't cowboy style, he wanted all every second of every TV show, every second of every promo to have a meaning. There's a reason for this segment. There's a reason for this interview. And if you don't, if you don't give me the, if you don't do it in with that spot, spot, uh, spirit in mind, I don't know if you're going to be doing any interviews at all. Right. So he was, he was, uh, he was good with corny and, but that's the deal. I thought, here's the thing. I thought corny could go away freshen up, recharge his batteries, which hel- hel- doesn't hurt anybody. And he'd be back because, uh, we, I knew that he'd be back on the, he'd be on the booking committee because he's too valuable not to put on there. I didn't give up my spot for him in a heartbeat. Uh, he's better at it than I am. And, but I thought the main thing was the fact that the guy that was roadblocking him, that was booking him in a poor way. in, in their estimation, Cornette's estimation, uh, left. So your, your enemy is gone. And so I thought would, would, would see Cornette again. And, and, uh, it's just, you, you can't, again, it's just so stupid. To let talents walk away. They're good. You, they're, you can't replace them. You can't wave a magic wand. And say, okay. I'll get, I'll get, I got, I got Paul E here. He'll, he'll do Cornette. Lee was a great talker. Still is a great talker, but he wasn't better than Cornette. And I don't think Cornette was better than him. They were both extraordinary, Right. but the, they had a nice little rivalry as well. And I think. Maybe, uh, you know, the Samoan SWAT team, uh, uh, if they didn't have Heyman, it might've been a, a little bit b- better pill to swallow for corny and his guys. I don't know. I'm just, uh, assuming that that could be an issue. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, a interesting time. Uh, but I, I felt really bad about that because you don't want again, you don't want to lose guys like that too valuable, but eventually it worked out. Okay.
1: Yeah. They t- wound up taking six weeks off. Uh Corney says that was enough time to let people get the bad taste out of their mouth about how they had been beaten over and over. Uh and then they uh come back and enter the world tag team title tournament. So without further ado, let's get to Clash of the Champions here. You and Michael P. S. Hayes are the hosts of the show. It kicks off with a nice video package. Jim Hurd is here talking to legends of the game like uh Sam Mushnick, he, he,
0: man. he loves Sam Mushnick and Luthes. Hurt Hurd because Hurd's a St. Louis guy, right? Yeah. So much was the kingpin of St. Louis wrestling and, uh, you know, a a raconteur with great respect in St. Louis and and abroad, but St. Louis was his home base. And then heard got to be buddies with Luthes and, uh, he heard was using Lou and Sam as confidants, he was using Lou and Sam as sounding boards and looking for direction and although that was a respectful thing to do, you, you kind of got to take all that with a grain of salt because they're, they're going, they're playing on what worked in the, in their era and styles changed, right. you know, and all this. So I, I, I and I, I've been, Hey, I've been involved in these meetings. I sat and had drinks with heard and, 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 uh, and Sam and Herd called him Sammy. I never heard anybody call Sam, Sam, Sammy. And then the Lou, uh, Lou was coming around and of course, here's the deal. And all due respect. I love Luthes. I mean, my God, he's Babe Ruth. Uh, but he's like any other ex older wrestler. He's looking for work and not necessarily to wrestle, but to do something. And, uh, and I, and I got no problem with that entrepreneurial uh, feeling, but the Sam and Lou were big influences to her in his early days there.
1: Let's, uh, let's talk about the first match here. Uh, Before we do, I guess we should mention you guys do the national anthem on the air. It feels like a much more major event to me when you see the national anthem, uh, at least in this era, what'd you
0: think? Oh, I totally agreed. It made it for more like a sporting event. And the thing that, that in the beginning, even though we were were swimming upstream with Turner brass, we were trying to distance ourselves from the product that WWE was doing not that their product all sucked, just that we needed to be different. Uh, We needed to have a different presentation, different feel, different texture to our brand. And uh, then all of a sudden, you know, we heard has this idea that we've got to be more like WWE. And that's why we had the hunchbacks. And that's why we had the uh, ding-dongs, you know, all that shit. It was just horrible. Uh, But that was, that was a story there, Conrad, is that, You know, uh, Heard was, uh, very influenced oftentimes by the last person he talked to. And I know that on the phone, he talked to Lou and to Sam a lot.
1: Let's, uh, let's get to the first, uh, tag team match here. It's the Samoan SWAT team taking down the midnight express. They get a ton of time, 20 minutes and 32 seconds. It comes when Fatu hits Bobby Eaton with the telephone. Of course it's picked Polly dangerously. It's brick phone. And get the pin, Meltzer would say they put these guys on first because they wanted a hot match in the first 30 minutes and wanted a hot ac- action sequence going into the hour. So people didn't turn off to another station. The stuff was solid, but it wasn't as good as it could have been. The crowd was arriving as the match went on, which kept the match from being good early. And, uh, he says the heat came up good at 17 minutes. They're building for a, uh, a double team on Stan lane and get a bunch of near falls, a hot tag at 19 minutes. And then the rocket launcher. And then of course we see the, uh, the big phone wind up in Fatou's hands. Bam. There's your finish three stars. I think the Samoan SWAT team, for whatever reason, are not remembered all that fondly from wrestling fans. You almost never hear about them. You hear about the rock and rolls. You hear about the Steiners. You hear about the road warriors You hear about the midnights, but the Samoan SWAT team, for whatever reason, didn't click with this generation of fans. Why do you think that is
0: hard to say? Because I loved them. I thought they were believable heels. They're big athletic, 300 pounders. They're not the kind of guys you see walking down the street all the time. They had, uh, Heyman as their manager, who was extraordinary. I don't know why they weren't, re- weren't respected as much as they should. And it may be just simply because we never got to see the, the necessary side of their personality because they didn't do promos. Uh, so that might've been an issue looking back at it in hindsight. But I don't know. They, if you didn't like them, it had to be something about their charisma or something along those lines, because their work was solid Yeah. and it was, and they were, they, and the, the thing I always say about heels, great heels had the ability to feed a great comeback and a multiple bump comeback. It's not one punch. Boom. That's your comeback. Uh, you feed the comeback. You get a hip toss, you get a drop kick, you get a body slam, you get arm drag, whatever the case may be, but you're. You're feeding the comeback to be able to do that. You got to be athletic and you got to be able to get your big ass off the canvas and feed back into the baby face. And, uh, they were great at that. They they, they, they were really good at setting a comeback. They get their, their serious heat. Cause it was believable. You couldn't see through their stuff. But then when it came time for the baby faces to, to fire back up, that's what you got. And also in this match, the midnight express were perceived as heels. But, and the reason for that being and I'll and do respect to, uh, the, the talents in the ring was Cornette. Sure. Uh, he was the heel.
1: I'm a heel. God damn it. A it's a one man. show. With him. Yeah.
0: Pardon me. It's a one man show with him. Yeah. Well, he's that good. Uh, he's that good. So uh, I, that may also tip te- made the match a little bit more tepid. I would have given it more than three stars because I really, really liked it. And, uh, personally, but I like both teams a lot. I like tag team wrestling. And the fact he had a young Cornet and a young Heyman. Yeah. Uh you know, was kind of cool. Absolutely. And looking back at this show seeing those guys there and their and their baby faces uh was kind of cool.
1: Next up we've got the the Great Muda painting Steve and Casey in eight minutes and eleven seconds. It's a Salt press at the finish. Meltzer absolutely loved this. It's only eight minutes, but he gave it three and a quarter stars and called it an incredible one man show uh he would write the uh the write up as the opening entrance was great, Muda blew the green stuff in Casey's eyes at the start and then proceeded to do every great move in the back including a backward drop kick. Uh he he meant book there. A handspring elbow dive outside the ring no less with the right way of using Muda. He can be the Jimmy Snooker of the 90s as he's actually a ton better worker than Snooker was in his prime. Uh, a few too many nerve holds in the middle and they didn't need to go this long especially in hindsight uh when they had the uh, can matches with sting and luger because they ran over on time. He's really, really impressed with Muda, and I like the uh the idea here that he could have been Jimmy Snuka of the nineties, but unfortunately they're gonna go the heel way. You watched it this week back for the first time in a long yeah. time. What'd you think?
0: I think that uh Great Muda should have been the champion. I think Great Muda would have been that would have been a great uh element to add into the flair sting luger a uh, championship uh, scenario. All I know is that when Muda would come to the office, and it might have been maybe it was him making those damn long distance phone calls. Hell, I don't know. Call him Tokyo. I don't know what he did. But he he the the women swooned over him. He was nice. He was polite. He was you know he was he was not typical wrestling. And uh, and so he was very respectful, especially the ladies in the in the house. They loved him. They're, you know, are you getting plenty to eat? You want to, you've gone here. You tried this Oh, all this. They, they'd be said, they love the guy. So I bring up the booking meeting one time, you know, uh, well, maybe, uh, an idea is to have Muda as a champion. Cause it creates all these new marriages and are different scenarios. And there's no doubt in my mind or anybody's mind, certainly that he can't carry his load because of his, uh, abilities in the ring, but that, that one That's that went over like a fart in church.
1: How much of that do you think is because he, uh, was Japanese? Yep. That's what I was gonna say either a Japanese or B didn't speak English.
0: Uh, the the English thing was an issue, but he, you know, that's when you'd have a manager with him and Gary Hart was his manager at that time. Gary's smart, man. He's opportunistic as hell. He knew this kid was going to be a star, huge star, and he grabbed him and he, and he and then Muda became dependent on Gary for so many things. And sometimes that's a good deal. Sometimes it isn't, but nonetheless, uh, my idea for Muda to become the, the champion, uh, just was, you thought I, I, I shit myself and I, but I didn't know it. Everybody else could smell it and they made faces because it stunk, but I didn't think the idea stunk that bad. I thought it'd been an interesting, an interesting change of direction. And you know, can you imagine Muda as a champion? Sure. He, uh, and, and and the matches he would have with Flair, Flair chasing, Flair chasing Muda. And if you want to go the patriotic angle, cool. That's your prerogative. But I think that the fact that uh, Kenji was Japanese, and this is the beloved championship, yeah, that people just couldn't come to say, well, I'm going to let this uh, December seventh, nineteen forty one thing go now. It's only been. uh. What 40 years, what you really think that played into it?
1: Like, like world Dude, war two had something to do with the booking I, decision here.
0: I think racial issues played into it, whether it was motivated by Pearl Harbor or something else, Conrad, I really believe it had an issue with it. Huh. Having the fans don't accept, excuse my language here. The fans are not going to accept a Jap as our champion. And I thought this is the most backward bullshit. And I just let it go. I'm I'm, I'm off the hill. I'm not going to down this hill because you guys are so backward in the thinking of that. And, and no, look, is anybody going to say that? Oh, they said that one thing I said, I'm not going to say it again. Right. But bottom line is, is that it was not, it was not the best decision for the company. And I said this many, many times. It takes a very special talent. That's active on the roster. Who's still performing to be a part of any type of. Uh, creative scenario. And yes, I know that we had that same scenario in AEW. I get it. I, I'm there. I'm with you, but those kids are, have a different mindset. They're not as tainted. They're not as, they're not as influenced uh, as not, they're not as political, so, uh, and I, and I mean that in all sincerity, but we didn't have that objectivity all the time in the booking committee. Everybody had an agenda. Everybody had their, uh, their side of the aisle, everybody had their, their cohorts and guys that needed to protect or to build or whatever. And then if you weren't on that, you weren't politically correct, or you weren't on the, you weren't in the right side of the aisle, as they say, then uh, you're just SOL. So it was, it was a tough scenario there for me. Conrad, I just, to me, it was, yeah, he was young. He was vibrant and look, part of his getting over could be learning to speak English, right? People would have empathy for him. He's trying, he's here in our country. He's from a foreign land and he blah, blah, blah. And then of course he goes back to Japan and becomes one of the greatest stars in the history of the country. Of the country. So I, have always thought that we missed an opportunity there with, with Kenji. And, uh, he was just that good. His knee before his knees all got crappy and first guy I ever saw do a moonsault. And, uh, the, well, I take that back. He's not Chavo Guerrero senior was the first guy I saw do a moonsault. McKinsey did it very, very well. And, uh, again, the ladies loved him. The guys knew he was tough. He had that little martial arts, Bruce Lee thing kind of going on. Uh, it was just a, to me, it'd have been a fun experiment, and but never got the chance.
1: Yeah. What well, could have been, man. Well, let's talk about what was in the next match. It's uh, what Meltzer would call the junk food dog pinning Butch Reed nine minutes and 56 seconds. Uh, Meltzer was never too kind to J Y D. He says that. Lots of stalling and both guys still blew up within four minutes. This belonged to WrestleMania four, uh, long rest holds to get the win back. But JFD still didn't get his win back. Ultimately, uh, we see that JYD gets the win, but Meltzer gives it a negative one star, but here's what the real story about this was to me. Meltzer wrote dog missed something like eight shows in a row and was said to have been fired. But returned on Monday in Chattanooga, and they wanted him on this show because they thought he'd draw fans in New Orleans. If it was 1983, he would have, but this isn't the same wrestler, nor is Reed. JFD's ring entrance was a time consuming and complete and total disaster. Match was horrible, saved only by Michael Hayes' smartass commentary. Chat me up here. Missing eight shows in a row, but we still think we need him for New Orleans, even though we've only sold 900 tickets.
0: Good management, huh? Good, good, uh, instincts for everybody. Hey, uh, in 1983, he would have sold tickets. He did sell tickets in that very venue. He sold 20,000, 25,000, 30,000, but he was, fe- he was featured. He gave the African-American fan a reason to come because he was an African-American hero that was making them proud. And he had so much charisma that he quite easily crossed over to the Caucasian fan base as well. But those days were six years ago and, and a dog had, had quit training to any degree. He, like you said, his cardiovascular training was, was horrible. The best part of his match was another one bites the dust when he comes to the ring and doing his little, little, uh, dance, but it was a, it was bad booking. I felt, I felt so bad for both those guys because in that very arena, in that very state, they killed it. They right. had killed it before, but again. Even if we had, even a dog was on the card, we're, we're back to that, we can't sell goods out of an empty wagon concept. Nobody knew who was on the card. It was a class of champions. And the one thing they promoted it finally was Flair and Steamboat rematch. Two out of three. They made it different because I think they made this match two out of three falls. Uh, but anyway, uh, it just, it was poor, poor booking. And I got a little inside there Ernie Ladd gave me the nickname the junk food dog was my nickname, uh, and I hit junk food. <laughs> you know, let's play some dominoes. Okay, Ernie. Okay, Big Cat. And the, Ernie and I had a great rivalry going in dominoes, heads up dominoes. We'd do our TV meeting with Cowboy on Tuesday, about eight thirty or nine o'clock. He'd get sleepy and cranky and hangry. and so Ernie and I would uh, excuse ourselves. we will go to my room, have a downstairs room next to Bill's, and we would. I would be able to open the little patio window because. Both of us were smokers and we smoked that sun bitch like we're Cheech and Chong in there, man. And we played at three, four o'clock in the morning. And, uh, it was just a, what a, what a, what an amazing life I had in that regard. Playing dominoes with Ernie Ladd on Tuesday nights. Every other Tuesday night was a
1: awesome. blessing for me. That's awesome.
0: Yep. A lot of fun. Junk food. He you got to eat better. Junk food. You're getting fat. <laughs> you like the dog. Now you're the junk food dog. Okay. Cowboy loved that too, but it was a great, we had a great rapport and the decision-making was done by two guys, Ernie and bill. I was there to take notes, add a little something. If I had something or suggest things, if it was there, but I was very careful not to tread on their, on their turf. But I, but all, all I'm doing is sitting there in a class. I'm in master class with two of the greatest booking minds in the history of wrestling. Cowboy, bill Watts and Ernie Ladd. they had amazing chemistry. And also the fact that we had a black Booker was very unique. That was unheard of at that time too. We had a black Booker, and a top babyface in the territory was black. So for watches all the watches, trials and tribulations of being uh, a, a racist, uh, and the, all the Hank Aaron shit and all that stuff that went, went down, down. Bill's too outspoken, obviously, uh, but he was not. He didn't hate black people. He 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 loved Ernie like a brother. He loved Dog, and when Dog left to go to the WWF at that time, it broke Bill's heart. So uh, that's when we started having contracts and guaranteed money. And uh, it took the incentive off a lot of guys because their downside guarantees are all they needed to make in their mind. So it, it just was not a good scenario in that regard. You can't put pro wrestlers on salary and expect them to have a stellar performances unless there's some sort of bonus system for the better you do, the more you make. And that was not the case in that regard. So anyhow, uh, I, I felt bad for those guys. I, I really did. It was just, and I think and he made a comment about Michael Hayes, commentary. We both knew it stunk. We got to do something here because we're doing a TV show and what the fans are seeing isn't compelling. We better add some verb, uh, some, some verbal contributions that'll make them stay tuned for a little while longer until we get to the better stuff.
1: Well, the better stuff is not next. It's Bob Orton pinning Dick Murdoch in nine minutes and 33 seconds. When Murdoch goes for the brain buster, but Gary Hart trips, Murdoch Orton falls on top. Meltzer would say this match was awful, but there was a reason. Apparently they were supposed to go 15 to 16 minutes. So they started out slow. The first seven minutes were horrible. Then all of a sudden they got a signal to go home early and had to go right to the finish. Still Murdoch looked bad, half a star. I know that George Scott has just been fired. Um, who would have been timing the show? Why are we running into timing issues so quickly
0: here? I don't know. I can't remember who did the gorilla positions at that time. We had big time. This, this show got very heavy, very heavy. Uh, it was a scramble to get the entire flare steamboat match on. Uh, and it was just, it was bad. It was a bad night, Conrad. It really was a best unorganized. You know, you got your bookers left all, you know, boom, he's gone. Who now is going to acquire that job. Who's going to rise to the occasion and, and take over that spot. It just so much politics going on and insecurities and shit like that, that, that it was just a, a bad day, a bad, bad, bad day. And you know, again, I'm embarrassed to be a part of it, quite frankly, on some levels.
1: Let's talk about the, uh, the next match here on the show. Steve Williams, your old pal Doctor Death, and Mike Rotunda are going to capture the NWA Tag Team Titles from the Road Warriors in 11 minutes and 40 seconds when Williams pinned Hawk in a screwjob finish from a newly heel referee Teddy Long. Meltzer would say the finish sounds a lot better the day before the car than it actually looked when they actually did it. It cracked me up because Jim heard as the show began, paid tribute to guys like Sam Mushnick and swore to uphold the credibility of the NWA. And then pulled a heel riff, riff, bit that Sam would have rather had a heart attack than have done. Right. Uh, ultimately Meltzer liked the match though. He gave it three and a quarter stars, but, uh, it's a fast count here that gets the uh, tag titles to switch. what do you think of the creative and, and what do you make of Meltzer's comments about Sam would have rather had a heart attack than do this?
0: It, well, he, Meltzer probably was right about Sam, you know, being upset and not happy with that, uh, with that finish, uh, Sam would never let that finish go down. Uh, Sam was like like cowboy. The referees were there to facilitate the match, not to be a a key part of the match as far as uh, that that level is concerned. Uh, it was Teddy was Teddy is so loyal and had done so much ring crew, put the ring up, ring jackets. Then he started refereeing. Then he you know we found out he could talk, and that was all good. And it helped Teddy out, but uh, yeah, was right about that. You know, just trying to make a character out of the referee is not always the best idea. It would not be my pr- preference whatsoever, but this, the, but it comes back to the deal that why couldn't we just beat the road warriors? Right. Is one loss. against a high level team like doc and rotunda going to kill your whole legacy. Of course not. It's egos and it's, it's, it's people did not want, we had no management uh, in a position to be the boss. So, uh, all of a sudden you got to come up with finishes that, that, uh, and we've already talked about his finishes here. Look at all the interference, all the little, little, uh, funky little finishes, uh, that they, that we did on that show to protect guys. So you're not getting anybody over if you're over overtly trying to protect another, another entity in the match. In other words, beat me with your best stuff. So for doc and return to have to cheat. Cheating to win is a different deal, but the referee thing was taking it too far. But again, it was protecting LOD, and I'm sure LOD would have had no issues pinning uh, Doc or getting pinned by Doc or Rotunda. The bottom line is this: without being a total wise ass, there would not have been a whole lot they could do about it. Right. As great as tough as strong as the Road Warriors were, and as over as they were, you're not gonna you're not gonna dick around with uh, Doc or Rotunda. They're too real, and they could wrestle. And uh, I, their amateur backgrounds were spoke for themselves. So I never did understand that. To me, it was just a, another illustration of bad communication. Leroy McGurk told me years ago that you know he, I already talked to a guy on the telephone. who wanted to come in, and he had the guy on the speakerphone, his first speakerphone I ever saw. And the guy was saying uh, about coming in, and Leroy was going to be So "We're going to work. You're going to work on top. But we've got a lot of confidence. You're going to draw a lot of money here." Blah blah blah. And the guy says to Leroy, "Matter of factly, well, you know, I can't lose." Leroy said, what do you mean you can't lose? So I don't, I don't like to do jobs, Leroy. It's not going to get me over. So all of a sudden Leroy says, well, if you got a problem losing, I going to have a bigger problem with you winning. So maybe we all just table this opportunity to another time. And I said, I don't remember who the guy was, but he wasn't going to be a difference maker, but him to come on and say, "I I don't, I don't like, nor do I want. And I really don't. I'm hesitant about doing any jobs to speak of. Maybe on, you know once you know every now and then, but not not on anything regular. So that's how that worked out. It just uh, you know you gotta you gotta be able to manage guys, and guys have got to understand this is a two way street. We're all dancing together here, and somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose. And if nobody's forwarded in the story, then all your efforts are for naught. Right. Who got over? You know who you know if you, if you who got over? Well, I don't know. Who, I don't know if Rotund and Doc got over in that deal or not. I don't think they necessarily did. But if they had beaten the Road Warriors, we could have made a big story out of it. Now the Road Warriors are, are re, invigorated, rejuvenated, and want revenge. They want retribution. That's a story. That's a story. But uh, the the story here was who had the heat when that match was over. Teddy Long, right? Teddy Long ain't going to wrestle. Teddy Long ain't going to draw no money as any other referee in that era or this era or any other era. The only time a referee did something that drew money was when you had a, think of those matches that flair had with uh, Harley they'd bring in guys like Gene Kaninsky, special referee, former NWA champ or Joe Frazier, former boxing champion, things like that are different. But when you're talking about a regular referee, a Tommy Young or a Teddy Long or whomever it may be. Uh, that's just the wrong direction to go in, in my view.
1: Let's, uh, let's get to the next match. I guess we should mention a few weeks after this, I don't know how, I don't think we've ever talked about this, but a few weeks after this show, I think it is, uh, road warrior Hawk and Steve Williams have a confrontation in the locker room. It doesn't go well. They have to be separated. You sort of talked about, Hey, there wouldn't have been much they could do. It sounds like Hawk was trying to challenge that. Do you remember there being a dust up with these two?
0: Yeah. And I think it was the West Palm beach of TV. There were a lot of yelling and screaming and, uh, and, and the little bitty locker room area and, uh, I was a stupid one to go in there and say, you know, you guys are embarrassing yourself and this is stupid. And if you get hurt, what are you going to do? With your, how, how's that going to look in your contract? If you're, you you can not come to work. Tight deal. Uh, and settle them down. I remember Rick and I had a little friendly debate about that. Rick said, man, you did your buddy Doc a good favor. I said, what are you talking about? Oh, Hawks, a bad man. He's a bad son of a bitch. I said, well, I know he's a bad son of a bitch, but he wasn't going to be in his feet long. If he did not knock out in the first, first few seconds, it's over. Cause the four time all American is going to take your ass down in a whale. And he's, he's, he's bigger, and he's stronger. Uh, and so Rick and I had a little debate on that deal. because Rick was loyal to his Minnesota guy. And I don't blame him. And I was loyal to the Oklahoma guy. And he didn't blame me. Right. But, but that's where it was. We just, it basically, I don't know if they even came to blows. They was pushing, shoving, cussing, MF and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, uh, it's like my dad used to say about fighting. He said, usually one guy's afraid and the other guy's glad of it. And, uh, so I don't know if that was the case in this deal or not, but they did have a little dust up, both guys were real competitive. And quite frankly, in all honesty, God bless them both. They both may have been a little enhanced. They're, you know, they're jacked up on the gas. That doesn't make your attitude any kinder or gentler. And uh, uh, they just, they they could have been a little buzzed, quite frankly. So who knows what the, but there were some substance issues, I believe, involved in that deal. But there's no way in hell, in my view, and I'm about to be wrong, and some people are going to find on Twitter. And by the way, it's at JRSBBQ if you want to eat my ass out. But Dr. Death would have, would have, uh, he would have beat, uh, he would have beat the shit out of Hawk and that would have been uh, the talk of the business for a while, but that's how bad doc was. You can't take, you know, look, I know I'm biased. I know I, he's like a little brother to me and we recruited him and signed him. He still had a year of eligibility left at OU to play football and wrestle. Well, cowboy hired him in the summertime and put him on the road. He's about 330 pounds, big old offensive guard for OU number 76 all big eight player, great player. And the wrestling thing spoke, spoke for itself. He was a four time all American legit in D one wrestling. So his background was in, in his attitude. Uh, I I talked to a coach at OU, well, maybe a year ago. We're just reminiscing about a lot of guys. He was, he coached here for 20 something years at the secondary. He said, well, that he said "The, the only player we ever had at OU that legitimately scared me was Steve Williams. When he would come, when they'd run a running play, and he would peel off and come down to downfield block, and of course, coach was a uh, coach Proctor, Bobby Proctor was a secondary coach and very well respected. He said, "I ran my ass off. I wanted as far away from him as I could." He's just "Too big, too strong, and he has no conscience." So uh, that was Doc in that regard. In that in that competitive environment, you get him away from all that stuff. He's a, he's a teddy bear, and I uh, and I loved him. I still miss him. So, you know, we, we talked about him in both of my books. We've talked about him in Knocker and, in under the black hat, little nuanced stories, but it was a interesting time, boy. That was an interesting, interesting time, but it comes back to a lack of institutional control. In other words, we didn't have a head coach. We didn't have a position coach. We just had, we had, we had active wrestlers standing in, in those roles. And a lot of the other boys that were now being dictated by one of their own peers uh it, it didn't it didn't go down well so that's that's kind of where we were and so all the tension all the pressure caused two very highly strong uh very combative very competitive guys to want to fight each other
1: well we got a spectacle next and i got to tell you as a kid i thought this was awesome but now as an adult eh. ranger ross iron Sheik goes to a dq in a minute and 56 seconds meltzer gives it negative half a star the highlight of course is the entrance from ranger ross he repels down from the ceiling, and he's repelling down from the ceiling of the goddamn Superdome. What a spectacle this was, especially in 1989. Uh, I'm really surprised this gimmick didn't catch on more. I know that Meltzer says maybe it's five years too late, but holy cow! From a little kid standpoint, a real live-action hero beating up uh, the Iron Sheik here and repelling down from the ceiling—that's good stuff.
0: It's obvious that the company didn't have faith in Ranger Ross, or he would have gone over in the match by beating Sheik. Right. A DQ in less than two minutes. Really? Right. The two minutes were because all their time got cut because everybody we're running out of time, which I also found to be somewhat incredible, incredulous because what if we went over a little bit? Is is it, are we going to go, we're going to get, we're going to be late getting to the John Wayne movie or, or whatever it was that was following us. Uh, so just bad stuff, man. It was, you, you, look at all these finishes, Conrad. Go back and look at these finishes we're talking about here. Teddy Long finish a DQ here. Hit somebody I got hit with a phone. Did anybody get beat with the other guy's finish? Right. I haven't heard that yet. So that's just bad booking.
1: Do you think that again is uh, sort of the old school George South? Well, we can't give them a clean finish on TV. We got to make them come to the house shows.
0: Yeah, of course, absolutely. But the fans are much more advanced than, uh, in, than they were in Georgia's heyday. As far as information sharing, whether it be observers or torches or tape traders or whatever it may be, people are starting getting more access to information. And when that happens, you got to change your approach. If you're that well scouted, you got to change your play calling a little bit, but there's just absolutely no reason, uh, you know, then, 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 uh, no reason to have these cheap ass finishes. that showed no creativity and who got over did Ranger Ross get over? No, no, he, he didn't get over. And because how can you get over in a minute and 50 seconds or whatever it was. So we had finish after finish and we ain't done yet. Right. Next one. We're going to talk about involved. Missy's purse. Right.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. Next up. We've got, uh, oh, I guess we should say in that match. Uh, the junk food dog does a, uh, a walk-in rather than a run-in for the save, according to uh, Meltzer. But next up it's Eddie Gilbert and Rick Steiner. They're going to retain the U S tag team titles, beating Dan Spivey and Kevin Sullivan. They only get three minutes and 51 seconds here. Gilbert Penn Sullivan, after hitting him with Missy's Gucci purse, you know, I liked Missy Hyatt on the outside. Uh, I liked the Gucci purse gimmick. Uh, I've always thought Eddie Gilbert left us way too soon. I can only imagine the type of fun he'd be having in wrestling today. Rick Steiner, just such a spectacle, but for whatever reason, this match just didn't do much for me. Maybe they didn't have enough time, but I like all the performers, but just the sum of the parts is just not that awesome. Meltzer would even say the uh, cameras missed the finish star in three quarters. What'd you think?
0: Uh underdelivered. It underdelivered. And I think the time the uh, time allowed and allotted was one thing. I think the fact that the the rivalry between the two teams did not have a significant build up, poor storytelling on all everybody's part there. So uh uh yeah, it was just not it just didn't click. And I'm with you, man. There's and all those guys. Eddie, I know Eddie, I knew Eddie since the mid South even booked mid South for a short time, Rick Steiner started in Cal for cowboy. I got to know him and his brother, Scott very well there. Uh, I always thought Dan Spivey was very underrated. Uh, the way Dan Spivey pulled off the Wayland mercy persona in WWF at the time was, was amazing to me. I was my favorite all time characters and it still is. Matter of fact, I saw a picture of Dan dangerous. Dan, the left-hand man, uh, on Twitter the other day. And he was shredded, man. He looks absolutely phenomenal. And he married my old assistant, Ann Russo. And uh, uh Ann was involved in helping Dan get the rehab and all that stuff when he worked for us. But man, if he had not been so broken apart and battered and bruised when he started the Wayland Mercy thing, there's no telling how big that would have gotten because he pulled it off. His eyes alone would not allow you to take your to take your eyes off him. On television, just thought it was awesome. And then of course, Sully is a, you know, I'm not a, I wasn't ever a big fan of the devil worshiping thing. I, I thought it was a kind of unrealistic because a responsible company would not, would not pay a guy that was, you know, you know, that mindset more often than not, at least in that 1989, but Sully had a great mind, but again, protecting Sullivan and Spivey, uh, didn't do the champions any favors. And if it did not do the champions any favors, it didn't do the titles any favors. So nobody wanted in this match up, even though Eddie and Steiner retained it with the missies first, uh, who got over nobody.
1: Here we go. Our main event, what everybody's talking about, Ricky, the dragon steamboat. He is your world heavyweight champion. He's going to be defending his title against r i c k Flair. or at least that's what the fireworks said when Rick came to the ring. It's a two out of three falls match. They're gonna go 55 minutes and 32 seconds. Meltzer would say this was an old style match with lots of time, drama, working holds, perfectly timed spots, etc. He says actually in truth, it was better than the best matches in that style as well. Both guys did more actual wrestling than you would normally see today. Really, these guys have taken today's style and yesterday's style and combined it to take this stuff to a new level. The only comparisons you can make are flare and steamboat against other flare and steamboat matches. In comparison with Chicago, there was more magic to Chicago because of the drama and the title change. It had a lot more heat, but it's easier to get heat in a nearly packed building compared to an almost empty building. Both guys worked much harder here than in Chicago and did a lot more actual stuff, but they had a lot more time to do it. Flair wins the first fall in 19 minutes and 35 seconds. When he goes for the figure four steamboat reverses it into an inside cradle and then Flair reversed it one more time. Steamboat will get the second fall in 15 minutes and 26 seconds by submission. And Meltzer says, when's the last time you saw a major star submitting this time with a double chicken wing. Uh, and then steamboat takes the final fall in 20 minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, when he goes for the double chicken wing submission, but his legs, which have been worked over by much of the match and gave out, he still manages to turn it into a double inside cradle type pin. The referee counts three and we weren't sure. Who would win, or if it was a double pin draw? But they rule Steamboat the winner, and the main camera on replay didn't show conclusively that Flair's foot was on the ropes. But a second camera angle showed, and in Steamboat's post-match interview, it clearly showed that Flair's foot was on the ropes for the controversy that now sets up a third match. For those who like the actual art of wrestling with lots of subtle ties, selling moves, and wrestling base moves, this is the best match in the country in several years by today's standards. Some may have found the match a little slow paced because they had to pace themselves for such a long match. Even though flair has proven himself in matches of late, he is still beyond compare with any modern day wrestler. The combination of having these nightly great efforts. Plus the addition of booking may eventually take its toll. At least it would with a normal human. Wouldn't it still in every standard of comparison, this was a lot better than last year's flair sting match of the year. And the surprise fall was a nice touch because I'm sure everyone in America quote unquote knew they were going the full 60 to a draw. It gets five stars. And uh, man, a masterpiece. Much different than the Chicago match. Two out of three falls and a submission in the middle. Uh, pretty cool. And I, I like usually, this is worth mentioning. I feel like a lot of times when it's two out of three falls, you go guy A, guy B, guy A. But here, uh, we we, we go the other way, and it's A, B, B. Um, two out of three falls. Steamboat gets the second one and the third one really a phenomenal match. Maybe the first of its kind on a big scale like this, uh, on a, on a national scale, on a national stage, two out of three falls. What'd you think?
0: Loved it. I loved it. Uh, I have had many debates over a cocktail or two that when everybody, the young fans are saying, well, are, younger wrestlers, whatever saying that nobody's ever come close to Kenny Omega and Kazuchika caught in the three matches they had for new Japan. I called all those matches for access TV and, uh, cannot say one negative word about them. They were all, they were absolutely remarkable. But to say that nothing compares to those three is a misnomer. It's a, uh, not being realistic flair and steamboat. What they did, if you go back and watch this show folks, you'll see that their match will hold up as easily today as it did in 1989. Fundamentally sound, great psychology. They didn't insult my intelligence. I could follow the story. I thought finally we had Hayes and I had a match that we could call that had some com- compelling a- uh, uh, assets to it. So uh, it came along at the right place, the right time. I always thought it was one of the best matches that uh, that I recalled. You know, uh, and you know Michael and I finally got to get unwound, and I thought we closed the show in a good way, commentary wise. But, uh, flair and steamboat were just absolutely just incredible. I don't know how, I don't know how anybody could ever say, well, that was okay. Really? So if you're a spot monkey and everything's about flipping and flying and, and jumping over the ropes, so everybody can catch you who just happened to be at the right place at the right time to catch you. Uh, then maybe, maybe not. But to me, that match will always, those three matches in 89 will always stand out to me as highlights of my broadcasting career. In pro wrestling without a doubt. So I loved it. I loved it. I, I love the guys. Uh, you know, the fact they could add a few wrinkles, nobody could have ever predicted Conrad that Ric Flair is going to lose two straight and one by submission. Right. So I thought that aspect of it. And I'll tell you this, I would bet money. I don't know how, how much steamboat had to do with it, but I'm sure it's uh, ample. But I, I'm thinking that was Flair's match to call Flair's match set up. I don't know who else would have done it, and because uh, nobody's gonna say, Hey Rick, why don't you lose two straight and win them by submission?" That's right. He came up with that, and it worked.
1: It's interesting to, to look back at this on the little stuff that makes this match work. There's so much more uh, groundwork and mat work, and I don't, I don't know, Jim. Do you think that you could get away with that much in in 2020? Could you get away with 55 minutes of this, where there's a lot of uh, more amateur style mat work?
0: Yes, if it's executed correct, correctly, if the story coming into the match is well told, if, it, if the match wasn't booked last night, we haven't it today, uh, all those silly things. right story, right setup, right execution, absolutely. Uh, because now in today's world, it's different. It's you don't see this very often. And uh, you know fifty five minutes might be a stretch, but remember, they did three falls with commercials, right? And so, uh, it didn't seem like it was a uh, endless loop of fifty five minutes of wrestling because there were some interruptions and the fact that we had those falls and that which which caused a natural organic break, commercial break, to reset, so to speak, uh were were there. So uh I, I, I just love the match. I thought it was just I don't know how it could have been any better. It's a sad state of affairs that the the overall performance of the show, how it was promoted that we talked about the poor booking on getting everybody a finish that that everybody could like. Oh, I like my finish because we're going to, we have a, we have an out. I just think that's the biggest crock of shit that I've ever. ever, That's one of the biggest crocks of shit that you can experience in pro wrestling is the fact that we got to have a finish that uh, doesn't show that somebody has got a finish hole, that if you get that finish hole applied to you, you will lose. And when we can't illustrate that, then it loses its magic. Right. And when he when he start uh, uh, de-emphasizing finishes, uh, you're you're losing the audience. You're losing the audience. So that's where I am with that thing. I think guys should be able to be skilled enough to cut co- to tell a hellacious, compelling story. But unfortunately, they made one mistake, and that one mistake led to this this devastating finish by your by your opponent. And people can buy into that. They can understand that. But if the setup's not there and the rivalry's not established and you don't have the right talents, I wouldn't, I would not have wanted to put Ranger Ross and the chic in a 55 minute match, but I had no problem with flare and steamboat they go on an hour, they got to go on Broadway. I would have cared, but the, the Rick was smart enough to know that the third, uh, installment was coming. And on the third installment, which is in Nashville, by the way at the old municipal auditorium, uh, that he was going to get his hand raised and get his title back and become whole again. If he ever, if he, if he ever was a whole. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I love the booking of it. I love the, they were unselfish. They were telling a big story, a big picture story that set up uh nation and, and uh, Ricky steamboat there in Nashville for that uh, music city, whatever it's called. And, uh, you know, it, the story was told. Everything was in place to make it passable. Most importantly, Conrad the two talents is what made it work.
1: What a big night this was for wrestling fans too, you know. I mean, we're talking about this main event which we all agree is an all-time classic with uh Rick Flair and Ricky Steamboat, but on the other channel, one of the biggest drawing WrestleMania main events ever, Hulk Hogan and the Macho Man. But it really does sort of paint the picture of what the WWF's version of wrestling was with what the NWA's was, right?
0: Be- yeah, they were doing sports entertainment and we're, we were trying to do uh, pro wrestling.
1: Let me, let me, let me do a call back here. I think that's what comedians say. They were running the spread offense and you guys were running the wishbone.
0: Yeah, there you go.
1: Uh, Meltzer would write, I don't know how they did it, but just after the Flair steamboat match concluded, Titan had a TV ad for their 900 number, telling people to call in and hear the live WrestleMania reports. They got this commercial through last year and there was hell to pay how they ever got it through this year is beyond me. A further embarrassment was that Ted Turner's own cable news network sent a film crew to Atlantic city and gave a ton of coverage to WrestleMania without ever once mentioning the clash of the champions on TBS. It should be pointed out that those at the top should never try and keep a news organization from covering a legit story because it involved a competitor's product or influence the nature of the coverage. But at the same time, it is still embarrassing for the NWA itself, that a sister company ignores their big show and never mentions when steamboat beat flair for the NWA title, USA today did a story on Friday, mainly on WrestleMania with all the familiar hype, but did mention clash and have quotes from steamboat and Hogan, somewhat negative towards the other organization, and there was some heat in the NWA about Hogan calling the NWA a quote, small outlaw group, but it appeared, uh, from the, uh, article that Hogan wasn't happy when steamboat said the WWF doesn't have as much wrestling as the NWA. So what do you make of this, Jim, uh, CNN covering WrestleMania, but not clash of the champions and Hulk Hogan calling you guys a small outlaw group and somehow, uh, the powers that be green lighting a WWF commercial inside the clash of the champions.
0: Well, that's a bigger deal for me than anything else. The getting the commercial on the show, uh, was stupid. Somebody took the order. Somebody logged it. Somebody made sure they had the creative and had the tape. There's a lot of processes involved in this. It wasn't just like a, Oh, that slipped by because there's too many people touched it. So that was ridiculous, bad communication. <clears throat> it, again, another illustration that the left didn't know what the right was doing. Again, more cooks in the kitchen than you, than you needed. Just didn't make any sense. And it, it pissed a lot of people off on our side. <clears throat> and, you know, uh, heard was, it just showed her didn't have the, he didn't have, uh, the influence that he needed at that point in time to, uh, make this work. Hogan knocking, uh, outlaw. You know, who gives a shit? Who cares? You know, really, uh, what do you, what did you expect him to say? The praises of, of Turner. I'm sure he's saying their praises when they hired him. Was that the same outlaw group? Or is that another outlaw group or no outlaw group? So it's just bullshit. Who cares? Uh, nothing unexpected there. The big, uh, the big enemy, the the villain of this whole deal, was the Turner Corporate, who uh, who facilitated the buy, the ad buy, and that was absolutely stupid. and And then sending a crew to Atlantic City, uh, you know, uh, and and not and disregarding what we were doing, their own people that they were paying, that their own company that they bought. So you, you tell me how that works. Tell me how. How that makes any sense. Well, you, you can't cause it doesn't, but that's where we were. And that happened a lot of times where in the early days, the left didn't know what the right was doing. He had, you know, he had TVS executives that wanted to be bookers. They read the observer and thought they were experts. So, you know, this crazy shit that we should not have had to deal with. We had enough to deal with all these egos and the insecurities and the fear of the unknown. It's kind of like this damn virus. We have no idea when this shit's going to go away. We hope it goes away. And I think it will, obviously. But when? Who knows? So, uh, somebody asked the other day, so are you guys still doing a pay-per-view in Vegas in May? Well, it's still scheduled. But how do you say yes or no conclusively? I don't know what the virus is. It may be worse in May. We don't know. So that was a the deal there. We just, uh, it was just embarrassing. We worked, a lot of us are working our ass off. A lot of guys, a lot of people. And then to get that shut up or keyster, which just, uh, it didn't feel good.
1: Well, here's what did feel good. The, uh, ratings for the clash, uh, from the reader poll and the wrestling observer, it got 97.4% thumbs up, uh, three undecided, whatever that means. And, uh, no 0. 0.6 undecided, excuse me. And 2% thumbs down. So overwhelming 97.4% thumbs up WrestleMania, by the way. It's 17.4% thumbs up, 82.6% thumbs down. No doubt about it. The, uh, clash wins. Everybody enjoyed the card more. Everybody said Flair and steamboat had the best match. Uh, critically acclaimed the main event. I mean, this is essentially a one match show, I guess. Maybe that's not fair, but that's fair. That's what everybody talks about is this one match, but my goodness, they loved it way more than WrestleMania five. So. While the eyeballs weren't there from a television standpoint, while the ticket sales weren't there at the turnstile, uh, goodness gracious, the fans loved it.
0: They did, and uh, they expressed themselves very openly, very freely. Uh, I I thought they might have got a little carried away with it, but here's the thing: uh, I really believed that I knew how great Flair and Steamboat would be, so them having a classic five star match did not shock me. I was very, thank God they did. Cause I thought the card prior to that coming into it with all those weak ass, uh, anemic finishes was going to be our kiss of death. But for some reason, the, the 55 minutes, that's over half the show. In other words, not over half. The show was very long and they got screwed up on timing. 55 minute match saved our ass. Ricky steamboat, nature where Ric Flair saved our ass that day. And, uh, I, I'd love to see the quarter hours to see what we were doing. And then all of a sudden you got 55 minutes of two of the greatest that they ever lived and see how those quarter hours grew. And I think there's probably a little, probably a little bit of a, you know, feel good moment for some of the Turner Bean counters that the quarter hours accelerated once we got our main event in the ring. So, but, but Conrad, it was just, I I didn't, I didn't like the show. I, I I love flair and steamboat. So for that reason. Uh, I would give it a thumbs up without a doubt, but overall we left a lot of on the table, there are a lot of ways, a lot of opportunity for talents to get over and better their game, better their persona that we left behind because of the finishes so we could make sure everybody was happy that everybody had an out and all of a sudden that equals dog shit. Excuse me.
1: Next week, we're covering Vicki Guerrero on her birthday, April 16th, all about Vicki's run in the WWE. And of course, uh, on April 23rd, it'll be all about John Cena and we'll finish out the month of April with backlash 2000 on the 30th. If you want to hear any or all of these shows early, just go check out adfreeshows.com. You can get these shows early and ad free for just $9 a month, which I think is like 42 cents an episode because you don't just get Jim show you get Bruce's, you get Tony's, you get Eric's, you get Arn's. It's a lot of fun. Check it out adfreeshows.com. And we should also mention that we've been dropping some bonus stuff here. Hopefully, you've been enjoying that. Dark Side of the Podcast. Of course, we're talking about season two of Dark Side of the Ring on Vice. Episode one was all about Chris Benoit. Last week, we saw New Jack. And this week, just a couple of days ago, we saw Brawl for All. Uh, Jim, you were involved in all of this, uh, how excited are you to see how successful this uh, season two has been for Evan and Jason and that whole crew?
0: Oh, they do a phenomenal job, Conrad. They just, they, their research is good. Look, those cats have been in my house a couple of three times now. Uh, I, they're always welcome guests here, uh, and they're really dedicated on to their craft. They love wrestling and they love storytelling. So we have that in common with those, t- those lads from Canada. Uh, and they do a phenomenal job. I, I've seen everything they've ever done. And it, it I thought last year they, they may have peaked and I was really wrong on that because, uh, the Benoit thing was uh, amazing. Uh, I forgot about the footage. You know, I forgot about, you know, I was uh, asked to leave the funeral of Nancy and Daniel, which was an interesting deal. I was sitting in my barbecue restaurant in Norman, uh, the day before the funeral. And uh, Vince calls me, and he says, uh, "I got a big favor to ask of you, pal." I said, "Okay." He said, uh, "I need you to go to the uh, funeral of uh, Nancy and, there's, and Chris and Nancy's little boy." I said, "His name is Daniel, Vince." Were, okay, N- Daniel and Daniel and and Nancy. It's going to be in Florida, I think Daytona, maybe or I don't remember where it was, but I know it was hard to get there. Uh, I barely made it because I got the instructions too late to go, we got, got me travel. I left early in the morning. It was a photo finish. I get there and man, you talk about a guy that was not welcome. And I never understood that. So all of a sudden, uh, I sat down in the back of the church and I'm minding my own business. I see guys turn around, and look at me like Malenko and, and, uh, I can't remember who else was there. And they gave me the dirtiest look that they could give me. And I said, I, I don't get this. I, what did I do? I, I hired the guy. I, I made sure he got paid for a year while he was, he lived from surgery. He got paid every dime. Like he was still wrestling. How did I screw him up? But they didn't want any WWE people there whatsoever. Hmm. And I was WWE written all over me. So I was asked to leave by Nancy's sister. So then this week or week or so ago now, uh, I get this email, and it's from Nancy's sister. She wouldn't apologize to me for that day, and I got tears in my eyes because I, I did, I'd forgotten all about it. But then, of course, you watch the uh, part two. You see the me arriving, and that was a big news deal. Here's Jr. The thing I should have done is worn my goddamn hat, but I was told to wear the hat, and by Vince, and I did. I didn't think anything of it at the time, but it just was little bit more, uh, obnoxious or whatever, uh, wrong, wrong place, wrong time. But, uh, those guys do a phenomenal job, Conrad. Their research is amazing. They've interviewed all the right people. They, they are able to differentiate bullshit from reality. And I just, uh, have all the respect in the world for those cats with that do these things and, uh. It, what a hit for vice i mean my goodness gracious everybody they're talking about that more thank god more than that exotic joe joe
1: exotic baby don't you get on here and and i won't have you besmirch the good goddamn name of joe exotic on this show come on yeah. man yeah
0: we know he's from alabama
1: <laughs> we've had a lot of fun talking about that on uh, ad free shows if you want to watch that tiger king series on netflix tony shivani and i are breaking it down right now on adfreeshows.com and of course we're going to continue to bring you um after you know th- this whole uh dark side of the ring podcast dark side of the podcast right after the shows air the very next morning you'll be able to check them out right here on this channel i hope you don't miss an opportunity to catch it every single tuesday at 10 p.m they've got some phenomenal stories lined up we ran through the first three on dock after that or on deck after that rather uh, owen hart is going to be the season finale along the way they'll also examine jimmy superfly snooka uh herb abrams is going to be quite a show uh how about uh dino bravo there's so much meat on the bone stay tuned device dark side of the ring it's tuesdays at 10 and then on wednesdays tune in here and uh, catch up with us breaking it down uh, with the producers of that show and next week as we said vicky grill coming your way uh, if you haven't already cruise on over to jrsbbq.com pick up your book under the black hat get an autograph get it personalized it's free shipping You can also pick up some sauce if you're like jim and myself and you're still yeah
0: baby yeah baby come on conrad talk about
1: the sauce the sauce (laughs) is the jam you gotta sauce it baby because everybody right now is doing more cooking at home and if you're tired of bland and dry shit, well this is the way to go ahead and make your wife's cooking taste a whole lot better sauce it baby jrsbbq.com of course jim ross shirts.com is where you can pick up a shirt and we've got some hilarious ones over there i don't know if you've seen some of the new ones but even like a a Jack Daniels inspired sort of Johnny Cash vibe shirt over there. I have a feeling you're going to want to be rocking that one personally, Jim.
0: Probably will. I like. Uh, we got a Dippin' Dot shirt too. <laughs> we got. Do we have a push shirt?
1: We do. One one of it? my favorite shirts is uh, I hate Conrad Thompson. I don't know if you've seen that, but we've got an I hate Conrad Thompson fifty fifty booking sucks. Not the damn <laughs> jip. Not the damn dipping Dots. You're right, Jr. If a man's got a pee, a man's got a pee. Maybe my favorite still, though, is cake. Uh, let's take a head of the old chocolate cake. Trim those coconuts. Lots of silly stuff over there. Go check it out right now. JimRossShirts.com. Leave us a five star review if you think we've earned it. Throw us a follow on social media. He is at JR's BBQ. I am at Hey Hey. It's Conrad. Our show is at JR Grilling, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on Westwood One for Grilling JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross.